Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. What's facing my books? Your grandmother. All of your your grandmothers. Wow, Garrison. My grandmother's dead. So that was. they're, They're still Facebooking in the grave. I mean, thank God, no. Uh, I think my grandparents briefly got introduced to MySpace before being too sick to use the internet anymore. They were on AOL for a while, though. Oh, that's that's quaint. Yeah, they were on AOL for a while. Um, You know, it's uh, it's. I don't often say thank goodness for Louis body dementia, but at least it stopped them from from knowing the the horrors that were to come in the digital age. They they got they got right off the bus before things got terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is So friends, Romans, countrymen, how do you feel about Meta, which is totally what we're all going to be calling Facebook <sighs> for now on for forever? The 
my main thought, honestly, is that like the word meta, the past like two years, the word meta has been ruined by yes. both like pop culture thinking it's smart and then shit like this. Now that a, a once useful concept has now been obliterated and we can't yeah. use it for anything anymore. Y- you can't be meta. And, and the fact that Facebook is attempting to use this as the name of their company shows that Mark Zuckerberg hasn't had a conversation on an even footing in his entire no. adult life. Like, everyone no. is trying to get someone out of him every time he talks to anybody. So nobody would say, like, you know, Mark, Meta's a terrible name for a company. But anyway, they did that. And they had a yeah. big event about two weeks ago where they got up and talked for an hour and 20 minutes about the future of the Internet and what Facebook's vision of the metaverse was going to be. All this all this very fun stuff. Okay, so here's the thing. It's a bad idea. And normally, like, bad tech ideas are a dime a dozen, and we don't cover them on our show, because this is a show, it could happen here, about collapse, things falling apart, and the future, and what's going to come next. But in this case, talking about meta is actually really worthwhile, because meta is one example of how the people who are kind of in control, or at least in control of a significant amount of the world that we live in, particularly the digital spaces that we've all agreed to be locked into, see the future. I think the thing that like makes it clear why this is in our wheelhouse is an article from uh, Wired by Matthew Galt, um, who's a buddy of mine. He's a great journalist, um, and it's titled "Billionaires See VR as a Way to Avoid Radical Social Change." Um, and that title does kind of get to the uh, get to the the nut of it, but the quotes in this thing are fucking wild. So before we get into Mark Zuckerberg and his vision of the future of the internet and of humanity, um, I want to read some quotes from John Carmack. Um, so John Carmack is the guy, he made Doom, right? Like, you can't overstate the Im- the impact John Carmack had on gaming. Like, he invented the first, like, first, effectively the first popular first-person shooter. He was the CTO of Oculus for a while. Um, and yeah, he's, he's very familiar with, like, 3D digital spaces. Yes, and he's, he's very bullish on VR. Um, and he gave a quote, well, not gave a quote, he talked to Joe Rogan during an interview in 2020, and he said this, Some people read this the wrong way and react incorrectly to it. The promise of VR is to make the world you wanted. It is not possible on Earth to give everyone all that they would want. Not everyone can have Richard Branson's private island. People react negatively to any talk of economics, but it is resource allocation. You have to make decisions about where things go. Economically, you can deliver a lot more value to a lot of people in the the virtual sense. Um, And that's one of those things that you can see how a guy like John Carmack, who is, again, a smart guy who's been ahead of the curve on a number of important things, could could convince himself this is true. This is absurd. And I think what we see in Facebook's uh, video is going to make clear that it's absurd. One of the reasons that it's absurd is that, um, like everything else the people who are building the metaverse have done, like what they've done to the internet, the internet before Facebook and and, and Twitter and these, like, these behemoths um, used to be weird and decentralized and primarily not for profit. Um yeah. there was there was a period of time in which like the idea that you would actually make money off the internet like really out of like content or whatever was just silly because it was this it was impossible to monetize. It was this weird wild like creative nonsense pile. Um and you could only kind of make money around the edges of it, but the core of it was just just far too strange and and uncontrollable. Um, too wild and free. Um, and that's not the internet anymore because of the people, because in large part of the people who are trying to build these metaverses and the idea that they would allow poor people to have the same kind of resources as rich people in the metaverse 
uh, they they can't let that happen. They're not the kind of people who would let that happen. They're going to monetize every aspect of this thing. If it becomes real, if we ever have like an all-encompassing metaverse, every every moment of it and everything you do in it, everything you have in it is going to cost you money. Probably um, with some kind of bullshit subscription yeah. plus adding on, you know, like randomized caches and other like, you know, loot box type mechanics. Yeah. Ga- selling gambling to children is the business yeah. model of the future. Yeah. By, I, by the future, I mean it's been happening it, for like 10 years. Yeah. yeah, it's the business model they want for it. Now, I, I will state, I think some sort of persistent virtual reality thing will probably happen in some way someday. I don't think any of these people, part of why my thesis of this is none of these people are capable of making it. It's because they, they look at this the same way like, shitty app developer shitty like game developers for facebook look at gaming where it's like everything should cost money you should be able to pay to win and it's like well nobody likes that like nobody nobody likes those games those are not the things that are successful like and and it is one of the games that comes up a lot when people talk about the metaverse is minecraft and what made minecraft hugely successful and why you can kind of plausibly see like oh this has elements of a metaverse where you're everybody's building these gigantic persistent things that you can interact with and that you can make these incredible and people made like works of art in Minecraft they did it for free and they did it because like nothing costs money really in Minecraft if i'm not mistaken like you can no, make no. anything just, yeah. with nothing you like, just buy the game and then you have the game and you can build whatever you want mm-hmm. yeah like, your you know, equity like, is effort right like yeah. yeah 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 and if like you know like one of my friends like learned computer science so he could like Okay, he create circuits, right? He like he built a like functioning computer yeah. in this yeah. game. Yeah, just, like, you can you, you yeah, can build you do computers this. You within the game. Minecraft. Yeah, like yeah, it's it's, it's pretty, like it's pretty it's pretty it's, cool. Yeah, if you're gonna tell me sometime in the future, virtual reality in the internet is going to get like so good and so pervasive that eventually people will bootstrap together some kind of metaverse. Yeah, maybe like that that could happen. Um, if it comes but, from like a cyber like punk aspect, where like yeah. emphasis on the punk, then yeah. sure I can see this being a thing. But the way tech companies are talking about this, this that's not how people use the internet currently. Yes. Specifically, yes. like the mainstream people, there's no way. Yeah, and there's there's a few more. Like one of the things that Matt brings up in this article is like VR is a way to avoid radical social change. Um, is a uh, like kind of the <laughs> one of the reasons why he's number one, and I think where we should all be kind of critical about how realistic it is, is is kind of the present state of virtual reality, which is about 1.7% of Steam users have a VR headset. Steam being kind of the largest app to try to monitor like how many people are using VR, right? Like it's kind of your best, yeah, your best it's, bet it's, at figuring it's, out the it's rough the size biggest, of that. It's the biggest PC gaming like, yeah. service. Yeah. Um, headsets, sales of VR headsets did go up about 30% during the pandemic, um, but that Not was kind surprising. of alongside a surge in video game sales. Yeah, it was not... VR headsets were already were yeah. already boosting, and the pandemic definitely it, it emphasized yeah. that, because it's like, hey, I'm stuck in my house, what can I do? Well, I'll buy like a $200 Oculus, so I yeah. can, you know, walk around it, and fight ninjas in my living room. And, and VR is like real, like VR is cool. Like it's- it, I, it, I it, have it, a VR headset, I've yeah, had it for it, years. It, it can do one of the things that, um. I talk when I talk about like what it takes for technology, new technology to like go viral to become like endemic. It has some of that, which is that as soon as you put one of these on most people, unless you're one of the people that it makes sick, most people, if you put the put them on and you show them the right thing, they're like, "Oh, this is actually way cooler than I thought it was going to be." Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that is like I'm I'm not I'm not like hesi- I, I, I'm not poo-pooing the entire idea of VR. Um, and there's 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 been some successes on it. Like Half-Life Alex sold about 2 million copies, yeah, um, which is huge ones. for VR, but like also nothing for a video game. 
Like that's yeah. like for a big for a fucking Half-Life game that's shit, which just it just shows that it's still like fractional, which I I don't think any of these people are kind of missing. Um but it does kind of point to again the the degree to which this technology would have to leap up for anything like what Facebook we're, yeah. we're about to talk about like it for that to actually be popular. Yeah, there's a difference between developing VR gaming yeah. and developing this metaverse concept which goes way beyond VR gaming. Yeah. Yeah. Um but I, I so I what I find what I find so like doomed about this isn't the technology, even though I think it's important to acknowledge there's a long way to go, just in terms of like how heavy it is, how much yeah. space you need, how graphics, how resolution, not fully making... immersive it is, you know? Yeah, it's more, yeah, yeah. Trying yeah. to remove lighthouses, making it even more like, mobile. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff. Even the that control schemes are still kind yeah. of jank. Like, yeah, there's a lot to yeah. be done, but all of that's. I mean. Think about the first iPhone, right? It was like a fucking brick compared to the shit today. I mean, like, all all of that gets yeah. better. It, yeah, and at, all like, of the that... first VR headset compared to the Oculus Two, yeah. it's like a massive improvement in basically every way. I, I don't think when people criticize this stuff by pointing out like how primitive VR is today, I don't think that means anything. Um, it is like worth noting, you know, its current level of adoption, but it's not. People compare this to like 3D TVs and stuff. It's not that 3D TVs were immediately, obviously, from the beginning, nothing but a but a grift. Um, because there nobody wanted what three really wanted what three D TVs had. Like VR, people do want what VR does, and eventually the tech will get there. What's bullshit is the idea, and this is why I think this article by Galt is so good. The idea that VR is going to allow the poor and downtrodden of the world to have a slice of the good life, and this is something Carmack is particularly bullish about. Quote. Not everyone can have a mansion. Not everyone can have a home theater. These are things we can simulate to some degree in virtual reality. Now, the simulation is not as good as the real thing. If you are rich and you have your own home theater or mansion or in private island, good for you. You're probably not the people who are going to benefit the most. Most of the people in the world lived in cramped quarters that are not what they would choose if to be if they had unlimited resources. Incredibly deranged. Yeah, it's out of its yeah. mind. Because also, like, 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 that's not how VR works. Like, I have like no. I can put on my headset and load up like a nice forest, and it's not it's not the feeling of being in a forest. Like, no, it's not. That's no. not how yeah. our senses work. So until we can hack our own brains into feeling things we don't actually feel, yeah, then it, it's not a thing, and we're nowhere close to that level of technology. Even just to the degree that he's talking about, like, yeah, you could you if you don't have a big home theater, you could just like put it on. And have a, a huge TV, and which is a thing that VR can do now. Like I've it, tried it, can, it. it's not but it's great. not good. It, and it's, <laughs> like Garrison, you come over two, three times a week, and we watch movies with all of our friends in my living room. Like the good thing about it, like th it's nice to have a, a large screen. I have a big TV, but it, like but it's a big part of the experience is like you with your friends. Yeah. you're yeah. watching <laughs> them react. Like you're eating food together. You're doing all this stuff that will yeah. never really be possible in VR. I have a lot of respect for John Carmack. He made Doom, right? Like, that's a third of my childhood. Um, he's out of his mind now. If he thinks that that's, like, what people want, what poor people want, like, you've been rich for too long, sir. You, you don't understand human <laughs> no, yeah, beings the, the, anymore. The, the particular type of escape, like, using yeah. VR as that type of escapism is totally wrong. Because, like, yeah. VR can be escapism, but it's not going to trick you into thinking you're living in a mansion. That's not, yeah. that's not how VR works, because you're walking around a tiny room in your house and yeah. you can't feel anything. You can, like, walk through cupboards, which is a great way to play VR games, is you can just, like, hack it by walking yeah. into, st into stuff. Um, and they're working on... So the, the article notes that Elon Musk is working on a brain-machine interface called Neuralink. Um, <laughs> yeah, Neuralink, yeah. yeah. And who knows what it'll... I, I will say that's a little bit like the... How, how realistic all of those dreams are. 
um, is 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 questionable. That said, something like what they're claiming it is will eventually be figured out. I have it will, no and it and it should it'll probably it probably should be destroyed. It probably yeah. should be destroyed. Like, do um, not put the chip in your brain. <laughs> Don't valves, do it. Valve's Gabe Newell is is really bullish on that technology. Gabe Newell is the guy we have Half Life for. Like he and he and John Carmack. Yeah. If there's a Mount Rushmore of like gamer dudes, it's t- they're on it. Steam. They make yeah. they make one of the they make one of the better headsets. Yeah. Again, like we're about to talk about Mark Zuckerberg, who I do not think is a visionary. Both Carmack and Newell are visionaries. Doesn't mean they're right because visionaries are wrong all of the fucking time. It's part of their job. But they're both really really fucking bullish on this. Newell is a big believer in like the promise of kind of what the Neuralink, the brain interface technology and VR. Uh, He told IGN in 2020, we're way closer to the matrix than people realize, which I don't think is the case. Um, And Newell is the person who I've just talked about, like how smart he is. He is even more out of his mind than John Carmack on this shit. Um, In an interview with New Zealand's One News, um, he talked about his vision of the near future, which is a world in which brains and computers interface and computers can make changes to the human brain. Uh-huh. He, that sounds he called, like a good idea. He called the human body a meat peripheral. Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is, is, this is the thing. He has thing, lost his mind. This is, the, this is the thing about like VR and like the metaverse in general is this over like emphasizing that – we basically just live in the meat space, and the meat space exists just to make content for the online space. Which is so And the online bleak. space is the yeah. actual real space, and we just have to operate inside our meat space to make content for that. This is like the way technology has been progressing, the way tech companies have been wanting things to go, and it's the most dystopian thing that's going to give so many people like disassociative me- mental disorders. Because, yeah, it's like, it sucks. horrible for like, you. I, I, like, I'm, I'm going to be super interested to see people of my generation, including yeah. myself, like how we develop mentally the next you know 20 years years based on how kind of fake our lives have been because of how much we exist and socialize within this like false network it's gonna be interesting to watch i i used to be really optimistic about aspects of vr i actually when i was in mosul i filmed not that like other people did this before i did but i was kind of one of the early people filming like a a vr documentary of some combat of like the battle of mosul um, aspects of which were aired as a 360 on a bunch of different like TV networks. Um, and I had this belief that like, yeah, VR, because the visual aspect of VR is so good, you know, y- you know, even at that point, 2017 was already so good. Yeah. I had this belief that like, well, if you could, because the first time I ever went into a war zone, it was such an affecting experience. And I thought like, oh my God, if you could somehow carve out this moment of experience and yeah. like transmit it to other people, maybe that would mean something. Maybe I, it would like have an impact possi- on people. I, I do think that is possible in the long term. Yeah, yeah, I, I think maybe. Well, like we'll like, see. The question is like, can you, you ever like make horror. people give a shit? Yeah. If, 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 you, if you like horror games, the level of like anxiety and to some degrees trauma of playing a, like a really well-made horror VR game is incredibly intense. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that can be done very well. So I feel like that type of like surreal experience like a Warzone could actually be carried over to some degree in VR to like change people's yeah. minds on like, hey, maybe war is not good. Yeah, um, I mean, that that's the dream. I don't know how much I still believe that. But th- yeah. reading people like Gabe Newell and how they talk about this technology, 
makes me lose some hope. Um, yeah, it makes another, me want to throw all the headsets in a, here, like, in a river. Here's another thing Gabe Newell said in that interview, Garrison, after calling the human body a meat peripheral. Uh-huh. You're used to experiencing the world through eyes, but eyes were created by this low-cost bidder that didn't care about failure rates and RMAs, and if it got broken, there was no way to repair anything effectively, which totally makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, but is not at all reflective of consumer preferences. What the, the miracle fuck? of the human eye! What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, no, fuck like, it. Fuck eyes. Like, like Gabe. There is some <sighs> aspects of transhumanism that I like. I like being able yeah. to like change like body I, parts at will with like my mind. But this type of stuff yeah. makes you want to throw all technology of into course, a river. Of course, I support the idea of like it would be great if when people lose their eyes completely from like shrapnel or whatever some sort of like degenerative disease we could just pop new eyes in there absolutely yeah 100 percent. we start cloning eyes i think that's a great thing but eyes are amazing no, <laughs> like yeah, the eye is incredible like the most yeah. their most impressive camera ever yeah like we're nowhere close to replicating the no, abilities of the yeah. human eye it, it is not a low-cost bidder it is like they're <laughs> imperfect like everything that that is part of the human body no, but like, like they he's, do break he's down upset that he can't monetize it the same yeah. way right that's yeah. that's his problem <laughs> He's also talking about like, well, they break down. It's like, motherfucker, have you used a computer? You're Gabe Newell. I know you've used a computer. Like, you want to talk about breaking every computer I've ever owned? Yeah, I've I've used Steam before. Yeah, like, yeah, I down. use Steam, motherfucker. I like, you, I would rather have my eyes, and I'm wearing glasses right now. Go suck an egg. And it it goes on because he 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 can't stop shit talking like reality. Uh, he talks about like in yeah. the in the virtual world he wants to build. Uh, the real world will seem flat, colorless, blurry compared to the experiences you'll be able to create in people's brains. Um, and I want you to keep that in mind, my okay. my, my dear friends and colleagues, yeah. as we leap now into the Facebook live stream. I mean, first of all, I think, would it be worth like explaining to, I know we, we, we've danced around what the metaverse is, but for people yeah, who are totally unfamiliar, probably. do you think it would be worth giving a general explanation yeah, or will that be covered um, in the Facebook thing? Th that's kind of covered in the, because this is Facebook building it. But I, I, I think it. we should, you're probably right that we should give a little bit of context about like where they got this idea. Because again, Mark Zuckerberg has never had an original he's not, thought he's in his life. He's not the first one to do this. Um, no. and, and Gabe Newell and, and um, John Carmack have had original thoughts in their life, but this is not a, an original thought from any of them. No. All of them, everyone anywhere who talks about the metaverse um, is w whether or not they know it a fan of Neil Stevenson, um, yes, who this wrote is all based on Neil Stevenson books. <laughs> who wrote a book yeah. called Snow Crash, where the point was that in the future the world is a dystopian, corporatized nightmare, and because things are in part because things are so bad, an incredibly highly like advertised and monetized persistent internet called the metaverse that exists all around us and is totally immersive has come to dominate everyday life, um, and it's a bad thing like yeah snow crash yeah. is a story it's of like not, wouldn't this future be horrible <laughs> yeah it's yeah. not like hey this is a cool thing but these tech guys read this and are like oh yeah that seems like fun but we could do that neil stevenson who is yet another person i respect made one crucial flaw which is he gave the hero in his book a katana and because the hero oh, in his book no! has a katana um, no. everyone was like, wouldn't this be rad if this were the future? No. Let's make this be the entire future. <laughs> it's it's a real tragedy. We do need to abolish katanas. Like, we would save so many lives. I mean, honestly, you could probably make a strong case that the katana has a huge chunk of the cultural weight that it has because of Neil Stevenson. Um, okay. He's a big part of that, right? You know, you've got a lot of movies and stuff, too. But, but yeah, but like the, the katana cyberpunk I mean, kind of melding. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, I mean, it's, 
it's a bit dated now, but it's still like a good book to read. Like there's but, a I mean, bunch of silly stuff this, like that. You've the, seen this replicated in a lot of yeah. other cyberpunk art, some better, some worse. Yes. Uh, every, some worse, it, cough, cough, ready player one. Yeah, and every, like uh, every, um, not every cyberpunk sense, because there's people like Cory Doctorow who do some really cool shit. Um, but most cyberpunk sense has to some extent um, borrowed from, from yeah. Neil Stevenson's work. And Facebook's entire idea is based on this. And so the idea is that it is a persistent, fully immersive digital world that interacts with the real world. So you can be in VR hanging out with friends from around the world in like a fake living room and then like call someone and see like a video of them in the real world as they're like walking to a concert or whatever and like talk to them and like make plans. Like that's the idea, right? Yeah. Um, so this video, this fa- it opens with, you know, you've got your your little introduction and music and stuff and then we see Mark Zuckerberg looking like a fucking golem. And Android. Um yeah. <laughs> And and the first thing that I really noticed about this is that he talks about how we're all going to do this together, meaning invent the technologies and use cases that are going to make the metaverse worthwhile. Um, and when he says all of us, this is not an internal Facebook video. This is a video, the meta video is heavily angled towards developers um, and investors. Um, and it's been viewed by a lot of people, like 12 million to date. But he's talking about like a big part of what he's saying is that like, the technology for all of the stuff that we've rendered, because most of what's rendered in this isn't game footage, so to speak. Like, it's not no. a game, but whatever. It's, here's how it might look if the technology is ever invented. Yeah, like, n- nothing, um, nothing is, like, in-engine or anything close to it. It's, yeah. all, no. it's all speculative. What's interesting about this to me is that he's he is saying we're going to build this together and, and sort of acknowledging that, like, Facebook does not have the capacity to make this thing they've dreamed about, but Facebook's going to own it. So he's a lot of like this is him tacitly admitting, I want to take your surplus value to make a metaverse that I then control and monetize entirely at my own discretion. Which is cool. It's great. Uh, and it's also like I think, you know, I, I think if 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 you want a sign of where this is actually going and like the actual creativity behind this, like, okay, again, everything in that video is a mock-up, right? It looks like dog shit. It's it does. so ugly. It's, it's hideous. It looks like a fucking Connect game or like a fucking Wii game, it which does, is yeah. fine no, for a Connect or a Wii, Wii game. The Wii but I don't want to live there. Like it's all no. like yeah. weird and cartoony. Um, yeah. So he talks about in, in kind of laying out why he thinks this is the future. Zuckerberg talks about how text used to be the basis of everything online, but yeah. now like photos and videos dominate, and that it's a as, visual thing. Yeah. Yeah. As that change happened from like text to video to photos to videos, the next change he kind of frames it like the 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 obvious next evolution is to what he calls an embodied internet, where you're part of the experience, and that's the metaverse. Which again, that if you part don't. Is- I think that part has some true elements. I, I agree. I don't think he's entirely wrong there. Obviously, that's not his idea. Um, oh, running out of time? Okay, thank you for telling me. by the host, and that includes unlimited minutes. Great. Uh, thanks, Zoom. Um, speaking of metaverses. Um, uh, yeah, so like, I, like Zoom, yeah. like, yeah. I mean, like, I'm going to... Yeah. I'm going to flop on to a uh, 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 share screen, and I'm going to show you guys a section from this from this video. Think about computers or phones today. Now, since we're doing this remotely today, I, I figured let's make this special. So we've put together something that I think is really going to give you a feeling for what this future could be like. We believe the metaverse will be the successor to the mobile internet. We'll be able to feel present, like we're right there with people, no matter how far apart we actually are. Okay, so I'm pausing it here because I want you to watch this. 
the room that Mark Zuckerberg in is is in. He's not in the metaverse yet. He's in like a house. I think it's yeah. supposed to be his house. It is clearly not a place it's human not beings an live. Actual house. No. It has been set dressed. Um, you one of the ways you can tell is that all of the books and picture frames on the bookcase are like the same flat tones. Yeah. Um, because they're not meant to stand out. They're meant to blend in, and very. Tellingly, this is what's interesting to me. As soon as he steps into the frame where he's going to announce this, the thing that is directly next to his head is the only thing that's not like the same kind of beige as everything. It's a bottle of barbecue sauce, barbecue sauce. that's being used as the bookend yeah. to a bunch of books. Now, Meta immediately after this, like people joked about it online and Meta started tweeting about it and like trying to make like jokes about, oh, Mark just loves his, you know, his, his barbecue so much. Like they tried to turn it into a meme because they think it's humanizing. Yeah. And 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 kind of one aspect of the meme they were putting together is that like oh he just forgot to you know he just he's he's so into barbecue that he leaves his sauce around that was put there on, on someone's orders like was, that was, it was planned to, it was to create me we're seeing we're seeing Marvel do this as well yeah they're releasing promotional images specifically designed to be turned into memes and it yeah. doesn't work because it's so obvious like because people are like you know yeah we're not going to use this because it's it's a it's a dog shit horrible yeah. like. Horrible cinematography, bad colors. This it's not a fun meme, but people did fall for the Mark Zuckerberg thing, uh, of like oh look at the barbecue sauce. But yeah, no, that was intentional to create like a viral thing to trend. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna let Mark uh, continue here after I made my little point. When I send my parents a video of my kids, they're gonna feel like they're right in the moment with us, not peering through a little window. When you play a game with your friends, you'll feel like you're right there together in a different world, not just on your computer by yourself. And when you're in a meeting in the metaverse, it'll feel like you're right in the room together, making eye contact, having a shared sense of space, and not just looking at a grid of faces. So that's important because a big aspect of what he's trying to sell here, why he's he's trying to convince people that this is a real thing, is that it's a balm for loneliness, right? Yeah. Um, he is, he is, and he's one of the people who's responsible for, for pushing our society to such an atomized and isolated direction. Facebook propaganda has isolated huge numbers of people from their families. It's, um, and of course, then there's just the aspect of it that is the lockdown, which has isolated people, a number of, a lot of which ties back to disinformation spread on Facebook. But like, yeah. um, he's, he's, he's selling this, you know, as a, this will make you less lonely. It'll make you feel like you're all together. Yeah. Um and it's it's he he specifically says at one point this isn't about spending more time on screens it's about making the time we spend on screens already better. Um which is horseshit because as the Facebook papers make clear Facebook has repeatedly refused to do things that would have reduced the harm of their platform because it would have reduced the traffic that they've got. And I think those yeah. are the kind of decisions and you can yeah. I mean and still like tech technologically we're still not there. Like when when, when you're in VR yeah. you even if you're interacting with other like 3D like personas of people, specifically like VR yeah. chat was very popular among like furries, and I think they are honestly the best example of what the metaverse could actually be is how furries use VR chat. Um, yes. But even still, that is very different um, than standing in a room with someone in a fursuit, right? Like it's yeah. it's totally it's to it's totally different. And metaverses and this type of thing, I don't think will actually solve alienation. I I don't think no because no. you're not actually touching anyone like it's it's no. not it's you're not at, it, there's still that 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 digital fog between you and everything else do i think there's some elements of it that could be developed specifically using ar that would make things a little bit cool yeah mm -hmm. uh but it's not going to solve alienation as a concept in fact yeah, it could actually make it worse it could make it worse. Like, again, there's some use cases for, I don't know, people who have, like, ALS. Maybe you could develop some sort of rig that would allow them to interact, like, yeah. more with, with people around them. And, like, 
that could be useful for those people, but like it is not a societal answer to loneliness. And I think one thing that makes that clear is you look at their vision of home spaces. So this is kind of the center of the of the metaverse they want to build is everybody has their little digital home um, that you can set up and you can design to your liking and you can buy things like NFTs to decorate it. This becomes a big uh-huh. part of the pitch that like NFTs are going to be in it. And like that way you know that they have at one point like somebody buys like an autographed poster for a, a metaverse concert that's an NFT and they get to put it in their room and know that it's, Wow. The only one of those posters or something, which is the dumbest thing I can imagine. Um, Maybe it'll work. I don't know. I I, I don't really see how that's any different from an NFT being revolutionary case than like, you know, being able to buy something in a fucking video game. No, it's it's just the way people already hate to do. Yeah, it's it's just buying skins or whatever bullshit cosmetic stuff. I want number one of the things that's in entertaining about this is how bad a lot of the acting is for all of the money and time they have. Like Mark Zuckerberg is a shit presenter, and and this bit where he tries to explain why the home space is so cool, um, and it shows you like the, their home space. It starts at about four thirty on the video if people at home want to watch. Is just a perfect, perfect encapsulation of like how inhuman this this world they want to build really feels. What even when they try to present it in its best face. <laughs> Hey, Mark. Hey, what's going on? Hi. Hi, Mark. What's up, Mark? Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh Uh-huh. Who made this place? That's awesome. Right? It's from a crater. I met in L.A. Uh, this place is amazing. (laughs) Boz, is that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. I thought I was supposed to be the robot. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) I knew you were bluffing. (laughs) Hey, wait. Where is Naomi? Let's call her. Naomi. Hey, should we deal you in? Sorry, I'm running late, but you've got to see what we're checking out. There's an artist going around SoHo hiding AR pieces for people to find. 3D street art? That's cool. Send that link when we're so... So, I wanted to stop here, because this is also part of, like, what's... It's this perfect... It's, like, NFT culture and all this shit. Like, the street art they show... This is clearly them trying to be like, here's one of these cool use cases for how the metaverse is going to interact with and influence the real world. Like this artist pastes this art on a wall that when you look at it in the metaverse or when you you film it and you send a video to people in the metaverse, it becomes this big 3D thing. And it it just looks like shit. It's just a bunch of like squiggly lines and stuff. Like it's not <laughs> – like there's good graffiti, especially in San Francisco. There's incredible fucking graffiti. Um, this is just like – Nonsense! It looks like it looks like a fucking NFT. Like it's just this this kind of shitty. Yeah, it was obviously um, designed by a computer, not an actual person. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing like it doesn't say anything. There's nothing cool about it, um, and they haven't again because Mark Zuckerberg can't conceive of art. There's nothing about this that like makes me think, oh, what a neat futuristic thing. It's just like, oh, cool. I can see squiggly lines. Yeah, um, and it has both in it person has, and on my phone. I mean, the big part of the metaverse and like AR and VR is like. You know, making depth within actually making two D space appear to be three D space. This still yeah. just looks two D. Like it doesn't. It is not. It's not tricking my brain in any way whatsoever. Especially with the concept of like filming it on your phone. We have the technology now. Like that's not. That's not the metaverse. That's just filming it already on your little box, as Mark yeah. Zuckerberg said. And we have the technology to do like that AR thing with fucking um. Uh, yeah, like with, with your Pokemon Go did that like yeah. five years yeah. ago. And it's not what people want. Um, well, Pokemon Go, Pokemon was, Go was for but a like, long time. Yeah, but po- Pokemon the, Go was the closest we ever got to world peace, and it was a CIA. Yeah. I mean, so. Pokemon Go is like the closest we ever got to like the metaverse, like realistically. Yeah. 
But people don't want people don't want to like take photos of crappy street art that then no. becomes three D, yeah. but still isn't like I don't know. There's, and it, it is it is incredibly grim that most of yeah. like the case uses for metaverse stuff. The only thing they can imagine it being is like fucking meetings. This yep. is like the biggest thing that they show. He's like, yeah. oh, we can make that, virtual meetings. They try that the video that we just played. They're all in like this spaceship, and everybody's three D. Like one person, it looks like kind of a hologram of their real body. Some people are just like three D rendered cartoons of themselves. One person's a big robot, and they're all like floating in zero G all, and playing yeah, cards, like sitting at a table and playing virtual and, cards. And there's like a bed in the background, but like yeah. you can't go in the bed because it's not a fake. It's a fake area. No, like, and you're no, not floating nothing. in zero G because no, VR will never be able to room. trick you into thinking you're sitting yeah. in a in a in your chair in a room with some shit on your face you're you're fucking carl havoc and trying to pretend that you're like having a good time playing cards with your friends it's like yeah if i could have a space station house where my friends and i could float around and play cards that would be sick but you're not promising you're not me that are you doing Mark? that no um i mean like so, I, there is there is games that simulate zero g they don't yeah. trick you they make you no. nauseous sometimes yeah. it can be fun but like it's i'm not gonna be fooled yeah in the same way that eating hawaiian g. baby woodrose seeds can be fun um, exactly. Yeah. So he he goes on to talk about the avatars that you'll have, which are basically he describes them as pro, uh, profile pictures, but much richer because they're live, which I find unsettling nope. in part by thinking about what will happen when people die to their digital avatars. But whatever. Um, at this point, he goes on to talking about how people he thinks people are going to actually use these avatars, and it's um, it's very unhinged. It's one for hanging out, and maybe the fantasy one for gaming. You're going to have a wardrobe of virtual clothes for different occasions designed by different creators and from different apps and experiences. So one of the things he's talking about that is exciting is that, like, you'll be able to have a different avatar for, uh, like, work if you're in a work meeting or, like, hanging out with your friends. Um, And to me that says, like, oh, so now I'm going to be expected to, like, maintain and keep up an avatar for, like, my job and, like, dress that fucking thing, and then I'll have to, like, switch to hang out with people, and, like, <laughs> why Why does that, what does that provide me, being able to, like, sit in a room as an avatar that I don't currently have, like, through Zoom? Like, why, why is, in what world is that something people Again, want, Mark? The, the only, only good use case for this is furries. This is yeah. the, the only way it's worked, because they, that, has yeah. almost like a truer representation of their own body. What what's this is going to do for regular for like people who are not furries is mm-hmm. it'll probably give people a lot of weird like dysmorphia. Yeah. Um, it... Or if you're or if you're trans and you make a female avatar, assuming like like you know for, for me if yeah. I was to make like an avatar that's more feminine, that can be fun for me. Um, but for a yeah. lot of people, these weird like digital versions of themselves will probably just they're just like uncanny valley and it'll probably just make you feel weird. <laughs> Yeah, um, and he's he's so focused on like this as a way for people to work together while being remote, which says a lot. Like at seven, like a, 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 like about a half a minute after this point, or a minute or so after this point, he brags that your home space can even have your own personal office where you work, which is within the metaverse. Within the metaverse, which, which is really like bleak to me. Just also, like that's yeah, you can go to work digitally. Yeah, God, why? It's going to ruin your eyes. Why you would cannot I... wear VR goggles that long. Your eyes get ruined because it's blasting light into your retinas. Yeah. And it's it's also just like I like sitting with a laptop and I have a laptop and I have a, a second screen for my laptop and I sit at my comfortable living room table and I I write and browse the internet and research and stuff. 
And yeah, every now and then, like I hunch over too much and my back gets a little bit sore, but like it's not, it's it's pretty comfortable and I can get up and move and do stuff in the house. Putting a bunch of shit on me and sitting still and like being unable to perceive the world around me and locked into this uncomfortable digital desk because it's later on, whenever they do, there's this mix of, you can see the videos of the, the technology as it actually exists and they're aspirational. In the aspirational version, it's like you're in this gorgeous three-dimensional office that looks yeah, like something like Yeah, you're playing basketball a, both yeah, in real life a, and in yeah. the hologram, which first of all, just impossible. Like you're never, never going to do, like, that's, never ever that's, going to happen. That's just um, physically impossible. But, but <laughs> when you see the clips of like, because they do have aspects of this built. When you see the clips of like the workspaces they have built, it's like, oh, 80% of my screen is the Microsoft Word app or Excel um, as it or, or Outlook as it currently exists. And 20% of it is like the edges of this little VR office. Yeah. So it, all I'm looking at is I'm seeing a full eye version of like whatever apps I'm using. You can, yeah, you can, you can get a VR headset. You can download virtual desktop. You yeah. can bring your desktop into your, v, into your VR space it's not useful. Like it's like no. It's yeah. it's it's novel for the first twenty minutes, and then you get bored of it because you realize that you can't actually see your keyboard, so you can't type as fast. Yeah, there's so, like, a great joke about this in the last season community. of Community. Yeah, community where the has dean like the best like, example yeah, yeah. Of, of the metaverse, where he's like, yeah. I have because like uh, the big part of like Epic Games version of the metaverse is like mm-hmm. interacting with like brands and all yeah. of your apps within a three three D digital space, which is what uh, the dean does in Community. He has to like yeah. run to his email, which is yeah, mm-hmm. like this is a great example. Of why this technology is never going to actually catch on for regular people because that's not how they use the internet. You, you, you don't want to traverse a 3D digital space to get to your email. That's that's asinine. Yeah, and it's there's aspects of it that are asinine and there's aspects of it that are just, thus, just impossible. So like a big thing that he's hitting on with this is interoperability, which is like you want to be able to trans tra- travel between different apps, between different programs that different people have made, and you want to be able to take like whatever items you buy, whatever NFTs you have with you. Um, and he's talking about like this will work in games. This is a thing that like you've seen people talk about with like the promise of e- N- NFTs for gaming. Like you could get an item that like is yours, so they they can't nerf it or or whatever, and like it'll travel for you from game to game. There's a a developer I follow on on Twitter. He made the game Adios, which is about like a, a a guy who disposes of bodies for the mob and tries to quit. It's a it's a cool game. He's a, he's a good developer. Doc something or other. He wrote a huge article about like why none of this NFTs can't work for gaming. Um, that also hits on like why what Zuckerberg's saying is impossible, which is that like so you're saying that everyone who makes a game has to has to build in like a way to handle every single item that you could possibly get in the metaverse no, and everything yeah, it that is, you're having. It's like, a nightmare it, for developers. It, yeah, it's, it, it's an unthinkable challenge. Um, it's and and like why and what if a game shuts down? Right? Like, are you saying they have to continue operating the game forever and updating it forever, even once it's no longer profitable, so that you can keep using your item? Like, no, it's just it's it's functionally impossible. Um, but it's it's. What's interesting to me is he's talking about all this. He has to know this is impossible. When he does, there's all these scenes, like you said, where people are like playing basketball and like one of them's in the real world and one of them's in VR, but they're both playing in a real world court. And they're interacting with the ball, yeah. with With a virtual ball. And it's like, number one, how is the person in the real world? How do they feel that ball? He says some vague shit about like haptic feedback, which doesn't work that way. No, um, maybe there's a way if you're wearing like a glove that it could trick you into believing you were hitting a ball or something. Um, and, yeah, like, and, like, and not everyone's wearing headsets. Like, nah, it's well, they're just with- we'll get to that in part two, the headset okay. question. 
Um, but it what what what's interesting is that like a huge amount of the the coolest stuff, the stuff that you can be like, well, that would be neat. Yeah, if I could fucking if I could fucking play um, pool with my friend in Germany and it would feel like we were both in the same room, um, even though only one of us is standing around a real pool table. Yeah, that would be an amazing feat of technology. It's never going to happen. Um, certainly not in any kind of reasonable time frame. Mark knows that. All that is going to happen at most is like a digital conference suite that like is damages people's eyes and brains. Um, and he knows that, but he's angry that Zoom beat him to the to the punch when the pandemic hit. Um, and this yeah. is his like that's kind of one of the sinister things about it. Um, there's other sinister shit, which we'll talk about in part two. But you know what, guys? That's it's time enough. to end part one. This yeah. is enough for part one. We'll 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 talk more about we'll talk about what's really frightening about a lot of what Mark's trying to build in part two. But for right now, I want to talk about ending the episode. Which I guess I just did. Goodbye. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... 
We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, uh-huh. the show where we're talking right now about the metaverse that a bunch of rich people think that you're going to want to live in once they ruin the regular world um, uh, and why it's dog shit. And it is dog shit. So it's just it's just it's just total dog shit. Um, everything about this, I don't know, seems like a waking nightmare to be. To me so far, if we're actually talking about like what they are, what they are immediately trying to, because a bunch of this is aspirational nonsense that, as we've stated, is like you are never going to play a perfect game of basketball in a mix of real and AR courts with your friend in Hong Kong. Like that's never going to happen. Never. That's not um, how physics works. It, yeah. That's not how physics works. That's not how electronics works. Maybe when we find out how to literally hack the human brain, we can like put you into a, a quasi seizure state that 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 the, that mimics that but like the closest that... the closest thing we have to this right now is actually uh VR board games is the best yeah. is the best example of this where you can play with you can play Settlers of Catan with your friend across the across the globe. Yeah, and there's some cool shit you can do with haptics. And haptic feedback is like the the basic example of it is when you like touch your phone and your phone like vibrates under your hand to like let you know that you've you've touched like a, a command. Yeah, and there's there's people who think like at some point we would be we we may be able to make using haptic feedback like a virtual keyboard that feels like a real keyboard. That might be possible. I'm Again, very skeptical of that. Still, that's still like kind of. Like yeah. the idea of a keyboard that isn't there but feels like a real keyboard yeah, that is, might be possible. You're nowhere close to that. That's still on the fringes of possibility. Like this, the fucking shit they're showing in this video is like nonsense. We will have laser cannons before we have any of this bullshit. Like yeah. we will be shooting each other in space before we have this nonsense. Um, and thank God for that because at least that sounds fun. So the actual center of what they've built in terms of the products that that Facebook uh, is launching now for the metaverse. Um, the core of it is Horizon Home and Horizon Worlds. And I think Horizon is kind of the brand they're going with for all of their different like meta programs. Um, Horizon Home is the home spaces thing that they discussed earlier where people can like make their own like houses. And one of the things they don't talk about in this, they keep saying like you can build whatever you want. You can make it look like anything. They don't say a word about how like decorating your digital home is going to be monetized um, versus how much of it will be sweat equity. And again, like the smart thing would be make it all sweat equity, make it like Minecraft, make, make people like be Minecraft, able to, yeah. to build anything they can conceive of. If they're actually creative enough and spend the time, they won't do that. Um, as they talk about in that, like in the video they played, like we're like, oh, this is a cool world. It was made by a developer. Like, yeah, you're going to buy the cool shit. Um, I don't I don't know. We'll yeah, see. you're going to buy it and it's going to suck because all you can do yeah. is sit at a table. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like you can't. Like go into bed like you can't like all of this stuff is just cosmetic like it, it's and you're not gonna be tricked into thinking it's real i've I've been in some yeah. cool vr like 3d rooms and like they're cool to look at for like but, 10 minutes yeah but you can't it gets do anything boring yeah, yeah like it's easier like oh yeah it's like the real world but i can't touch anything and and when they show <laughs> you the stuff that's closer to real like the different like people chatting in the metaverse and whatever yeah. it, it doesn't look fun there's a there's a scene where no. they like show people 
like watching a YouTube video together in the metaverse, and they're all like these disembodied upper torsos because, of course, VR your sets legs. can't can't yeah. read your legs. So it's like a bunch of torsos floating around a maximized YouTube video window, yep. and it's like. I would rather just show a friend my phone. <laughs> like, yep. I would even rather yeah. text them a video. <laughs> you know what's and actually them... <laughs> realer than that is yeah. being in person with somebody and watching yeah. it on a on a phone. Or even, but even even if without, like, it's the kind. I think that they're expecting that, like, everyone's kind of bummed when they send a friend a video over signal or text and like what? wait for them. No, I would rather do that no. than this shit. I don't want to no. hang out as a I bunch of torsos wanna, like, around a YouTube. Window. I don't want to schedule a a VR session every time I want to share a YouTube video. No, that sounds horrible. And it sounds like I would constantly have to be in VR. Like he talks about how we're not trying to expand screen time, but like, am I just waiting around in VR to like show friends YouTube videos? They are real unclear about how often you need to be in a headset. And it's, it's kind of suspicious. It's almost like they don't actually plan on doing anything. So there's all bullshit. I'm going to play another video that they claim to be a use case. And the way this video starts is like, this actual person is in an actual real world concert for some guy I've never heard of that Facebook. I think he's he's some clearly some sort of musician with a following that Facebook hired to do a concert for this video. Rad. And she like calls her friend on the metaverse and her friend digitally hops into the concert and they like the digital girl and the real girl are like dancing together at the show, which uh-huh. I don't know, whatever. Like that is more possible than the basketball shit. Um, I mean, yeah, watching a Having a like a yeah. VR version of standing in a room where a musician plays, sure. I mean, it's not yeah, be tons it's doable, of fun, but it's I, doable. I, I, yeah, I would debate like whether or not it's doable. But then after that, they see like during the concert, this like digital thing pops up that's like, "Do you want to go to a free after party?" Um, and first off, all of these after parties will cost money and they'll all be dog shit. But um, that's the same with most real after parties. So I guess that's that's at least Facebook uh, accurately delivering on on the promise <laughs> of the real world. <laughs> Um, but I, I want to play like what happens in this metaverse after party that these two both hop into digitally after one of them. So like, as this starts, the lady who was actually at the concert, like sits down at home and gets into the metaverse. Imagine your best friend is at a concert somewhere across the world. What if you could be there with her? Yeah. Real, yeah, re- real and clear how that works. Yeah, real clear like, how, how that works. How does the person at the concert see the holographic version? How does the holographic person see that? Yeah, is she wearing and, all like, that like, shit while she's are, dancing? Are, is yeah. everyone wearing VR and seeing the world through VR? Because I'll tell you what, like right now, I'm, I, I, I in our break, you're wearing I put on, an I put Oculus. On, this I put on, time. Like, I put on an Oculus as a joke, and right mm-hmm. now I, I have it on the pass through mode, which means I can see the real world through my cameras yeah. in the Oculus. And you know what? It looks like shit. Yeah, it's black and, it, and white. It's super grainy. I can't. There has it has no like exposure range. Yeah, everything is like it's it's like it's you like, look like, like you're tracers. wearing a sunglasses case in your it's on your bad. in front of your face. <laughs> and, like, like you I can look see like the shit. world, but like I can't do anything because it all is like a horrible digital like copy. And, like, like I can't. Uh, like it's not re- Like I can't again, do anything. Aspects of this, like at, at some point, pass through mode will be in color, and the latency will be low some, enough so, that you won't really notice are, it, yeah. right? Like, and it, there won't be latency, and like, yeah, but it'll. But it's not going to be th- as good as looking at it with thing. your human eyeball. Yeah, yeah. and it'll it'll <laughs> still be a thing. So that girl's going to have to be at a concert, dancing, getting super sweaty, and like she's wearing something, even if it's as small as like regular glasses. Yeah, she's not like. 
I guess like, that, I'll, I'll that would be better. The, but like, I'll talk whatever. about this more at the end. But like, the, if people are actually going to develop this this yeah. technology, the real way to do it is with AR, yeah. not not VR. Because with AR, yeah, you could have put on like actual glasses and yeah. have like a person show up on the thing and make it look like they're there while actually still seeing the real world. That's going to yeah. be the way to do it. Yeah, um, and, and I think that is are, what are they're to do it. Yeah, I think that's what they're like claiming here, but it's really unclear how it's all going to interface, how the AR is going to interface with like the full VR stuff. Like, are we going to have two separate sets of gear, one for when we're in the real world and we can't be fully immersive yeah. and one for when we want to dive into the metaverse? Do because we always they're not carry that be around? Do, both. do we always carry yeah. that around wherever we yeah. go? Yeah, but I, I want to play the section. I, I Sorry, I played the video where they were at the concert just because it. It looks very silly. I want to play the section where they're at the after party because it, it's dystopian as fuck. So here's the all all metaverse after party that looks like a bunch of fucking connect avatars standing around a ne- like a, a, a room made out of glowing neon. A digital room, yeah. Nobody's drinking, which is the only good thing to do at an after party that's not cocaine. So from from the jump, I'm like, well, what is the only good thing about an after party is if you want more drugs and all of the drugs places are closed, hey, so you go may- to an maybe, after party. Maybe at the end you can hook up with a digital avatar. Yeah, it's anyway. That I'm just be, gonna that play. Be fun. I'm just gonna play this dog shit. <laughs> Where's it? Work? This is wild. <laughs> is it? Is it? <laughs> They're just slowly dancing. He's a giraffe man. Hey, check this out. Charity auction. NFTs. For oh, yeah, charity oh, auction for NFT merchandise. That looks like shit. Yeah. It looks dog shit. Yeah. So it's like what... it's it's a it's a horrible three D chat room. We already have these. These already exist, yeah. and they're not tons of fun. The and, only and time like... they're fun is when you're in fursuits and you're walking around a fake city destroying it. That's the only fun way to do this. <laughs> and, and the thing they're showing in this is that like a, a, a an autographed poster for the concert. Um, is is an NFT that you can buy for a charity auction. And like as they're looking at it, the actual musician walks by and tells them it looks cool. And so they buy it. And they, they have the musician come in for that, number one, to like try to make this kind of like, yeah, you'll be able to do these digital events where you can meet actual celebrities, which like, no. I'm sure celebrities will agree to do Q&As in the multiverse like they do anywhere else, but they're not going to just walk around in some dog shit virtual party. No, because they have money and they can do actual fun things in the actual real world. They're going to be fucking supermodels while skiing down a mountain in Lake Tahoe because they're rich. Um, They're going to be like flying in their private jets or, or driving in a fucking yacht and eating lobster that's been tortured so it tastes better because they're rich. Like... They're they're not going to be hanging out in a digital lobby telling you that a fucking dog shit poster NFT is cool and that you should buy it Um, unless you're a millionaire and they want your money because uh, they're Nicolas Cage and they have an addiction to buying Tyrannosaurus parts. I don't know. It's it's silly. It's it's ridiculous. Um, Yeah. So one of the things that I thought about when I was watching this is like the concept of metaverse culture. Um, so like at some point, if this is a thing, there's going to be like, like if there ever is a metaverse, people will develop a culture for it. Just like they've yeah. developed a culture for Twitter, a culture for Reddit, a culture for Facebook, just as there were like internet culture or was Final internet Fantasy, culture World of Warcraft. Yeah. yeah, it happens with every community you make online. Um, and, and that's the thing, like there's no, I see no space in this thing that Mark Zuckerberg has envisioned as he is presenting it for organic yeah, no. evolution of a culture. None of the yeah. things in here are going to make people want to form a culture around it because it's all yeah. it looks like 
it looks like boring yuppie shit. All of it. Yeah. Like, none of it is actually looks cool or fun. And like, none of it, none of it is. He's not talking about any of it with like the. There's no. There's no openness in it. Like there's. I don't see where a culture could evolve. And if one does, it's going to be directly like in opposition to Facebook moderation. Um, like yeah. It, um. It, well, yeah, and, and I mean, and there's there's an extent to which like they can't right because like. If if you actually let people just like do things, like imagine the griefing that's going to happen in one of these spaces, yeah. right? Like every person's avatar is going to be like sixteen thousand dongs. Yeah, like, that's just that's literally that's all it's going to be. Like this is this is this is what Twitch looks like, right? Like every yeah, Twitch it, chat is just a guy posting a hydra made of dongs. Like it, like they, they, none of none of this can actually work if you let people do literally anything. But if you don't let people do anything, like why would you? No ever, one's going like, to want to do it. Yeah, and yeah. It, like it, how how are you going to sell them this crap? Like. The, once upon a time, there was a game called Second Life. I guess it still exists, but it still people exists. were talk. People talked about it the way they're talking about the metaverse now, and yeah. that became just like it, it. It was never that, but there was like this beautiful moment where this I think Anshi Chung was her name. Um, this like culture writer kind of uh, expert lady was like doing a Q and A in Second Life that was like billed as being this like big event for the platform that was going to like make people take it seriously. And a bunch of like users showed up and made a bunch of floating dicks like float through the room during the interview so that like while this person was trying to talk seriously about Second Life, just like floating cocks were zooming past her head the, the entire time. And it was extremely funny. And it's it's exactly the kind of thing that like, yeah, Mark, that's what all of this is going to look like. Any mass event is going people will find a way to grief it. Um, and that will, in fact, be the thing they most want to do. Is that will yeah. be the and, actual and, culture part is fucking yeah. with Facebook. Yeah, yeah, like, but, you know. But the, the part about that that sucks is like, yeah, you know, like you're you're in a virtual reality thing, right? So like, okay, what are people going to do in a virtual reality? It's well, okay, you're gonna get you're gonna get a bunch of neo Nazis like oh, figuring yeah. out a way to like show you just like the worst shit you've ever seen in your life. Like it's, it's gonna it's gonna be all the stuff from the two thousands where like. Like half of the internet was just like a video. Of, well, I mean, this is the 2010s too. Like half of Twitter is just beheading videos, except now it's in yeah. VR. It's like yeah, and yeah. Imagine ISIS in the metaverse. It's going to be yeah. amazing. That's oh, some of that's even already happening in like VR yeah. social media apps. I know of a few specific Nazis involved in January 6th yep. who networked and met with people via uh, specifically VR chat. So mm -hmm. like this is this is already a thing. Um, and making it of even more it broad than like this small, you know, because the VR right now is mostly just a yeah. small subsect of like gaming culture, right? And people are yeah. into it because there is VR games that are cool, like 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 Beat Saber is fun, right? Yeah, that's why there's, people, there's that's why, fun that's why VR games. It. Yeah, absolutely. But I um, the, in order to, for them to break this through into the mainstream, they need to make it appealing some way, and the only way they're making it appealing right now is by doing meetings and like concerts. Yeah. So the next part I want to play doesn't say a lot about the future Mark's trying to build, but it's very funny because it's him sitting down with a woman who works in his gaming department and she's walking him through like what games are going to be integrated into the metaverse. And it fucking reads like an I think you should leave sketch. Like it feels like a sketch where the joke is that everyone is awkward and not talking yeah. the way human beings talk. Yeah. And in case you can't watch this chunk of the video and it starts at about like 1934 um, in the actual Facebook video, all of the video games they're talking about, like, look dog shit. They look like the Kirkland brand of, like, popular, like, fighting games and FPSs and stuff. None of them look very good. Um, so I'm going to play a clip from this because it's very funny. This can build out active communities. 
Beat Saber has a passionate community. Oh, I love Beat Saber. So do I. And Beat Saber just passed $100 million in lifetime revenue on Quest alone. It's a great example of a game that keeps releasing fresh content. They've actually been working on evolving the way that you interact with the tracks and feel the music. The way he's nodding in this, like his digital avatar looks more like a person. Oh, here's some Beat Saber. Yeah. Yeah, it, it looks like regular Beat Saber. Yep. But it's it's VR. It, it, it's our, it's already is VR. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's already a VR game. I can't wait to play this. And they you can already play it. With incredible artists to release new music packs all the time. You can Did do you this right now. Music pack last God, month? A little more than I should have. I probably should have been working more on this metaverse presentation. <laughs> well, oh, God. Every scene where she's talking to him and he's just like bobblehead nodding just a little bit, but not in like it's. He looks Again, so fake. Yeah. Mark actually will benefit from the metaverse, like outside of a financial thing, because a a sculpted 3D representation of him will be a thousand times better. At looks like, more human than he look, does. Looks like more of a person. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, it's Jeez. just like he's scripted it badly and he's a narcissist, so he has to be the one to present it. Again, a smart... Oh, like, I love Beat Saber. Like, number uh-huh. one, if Steve Jobs were doing this, number one, he wouldn't, because he understood what people wanted from technology. But if he were doing something like this, he would introduce like little chunks of it and then he would have a famous person who's charismatic introduce the rest of it like yeah that's yeah like you it wouldn't be it wouldn't he be would introduce how him it, sitting at, like a bobblehead listening and to like he would introduce vr and ar into a way that actually integrates how people use the internet already because yes. there is ways that there is ways of doing yes, it there's th- but this it's not can, this like yeah. super monetized nft like bullshit holographic yeah. fake stuff yeah, and there's there's aspects of this, like he goes through after this, like there's a bunch of gaming stuff, which is impossible for the reasons we've talked about. And then there's aspects of it that seem cool. Like there's a scene where like an architect gets onto his digital office and like somebody sends him uh, schematics to a, a, a building they're making and he's able to generate it in 3D and walk around the building. Like, okay, that actually That's seems actually possible. Useful. Yeah, yeah, and that like seems 3D, like useful. Well, like you've developed a use case for the all well, of the maybe, architects like, out there. Yeah. It's, 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 I'm, I'm still not convinced that would actually be better in 3D than it would be like sure it's I, debatable I, I I think like it maybe an, someday that it, could actually I think be it, useful. it could be like if you are one of the increasingly small number of people who can afford to like build a house of your own I can see why it would be neat to be like okay well let's do a 3D render of the house and I can walk through it and I could maybe make changes at the last moment as I'm kind of experiencing you know, that, the that flow is, of that the is room definitely useful. where a window is like yeah I can that that seems like something number one technologically you could do that more or less now um, I don't think it's, it's not going to be as instantaneous as this but if you give it time to render it could be done and it it's something that a number of people might find useful but again that's a niche product because like eighteen people in our generation because, are buying homes. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and also it's 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 expensive to develop because you would have just modeling an actual yeah. real life location is a lot of work. Yeah. Um, now there is there is a lot of lot of technology that's getting way better at it by yeah, using machine like, cameras to, to um, and like basically stuff. filming yeah. a space and and the the computer can reconstruct it pretty accurately. Yeah. Uh, I, so that 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 is a growing field, but still it is it is it's a very niche you know area at least at this yeah. point. Yeah. So I, the thing that is, so anyway, there's aspects of this that are ridiculous, aspects of this that seem neat. But the longer you watch it, the thing that come, becomes really clear is that all he's really advertising is mass surveillance. That's so the problem with, yeah. Yeah. There's a point in this video where they're showing you how they can like map a real world location. So you can be in your actual house, put on your VR glasses, um, and it can map the, uh, 
your actual home digitally in real yeah. time. And as you in as you pick up real things in your house, you you see them being picked up in VR and presumably other people in VR could see it. Which we are um, not quite there yet. I, I stay pretty up to in VR technology. We're getting close to this, but we're not yeah. we're not quite there. I mean, we're we're actually we actually are aware what they show in the video, and I'm going to play you a second uh, from it because I want to show you something like, here. At least I mean, like well, for like consumer products, we're not we're not at this point yet. Yeah, and I I, I want to show you, uh, where we are because th- th- this video they're showing like actual footage, so they have built this thing, but there's a catch, and so I'm just going to play it right now. All right. Without the researcher, so what's critical here is that this is all happening in real time. So if you I'm, I've just paused it, what you've got here on one side, there's a woman in a real like house sitting and picking up like a, a, a toy home on her yeah. couch. And then on the left, you see the VR version of her house, which looks close to photorealistic. And like yeah. the house that she's holding in the real world is floating in the same way that she's holding it. Like her body isn't there, yeah. but like the stuff she's interacting with is. But if you look at the house she's holding. The reason that they're able to do this and it really does work is it's covered in sensors. It's covered in sensors. And, and actually every single thing in the real house is covered in sensors um, because that's the only way for this to work Everything right now. Everything that's moving is covered in sensors, yeah. Yeah, and it, it is impressive. Like as a proof of concept, like this this is here, we can do this. But like it's still light years away from practical. And more to the point, when you look at this, you realize that like, well, if this is ever going to work, the only way to make it work is for Facebook through this service to map your entire home yeah. in real time every hour always, of the always. day. Yeah. And they also go on to talk about like how you're going to have gesture commands and like you'll be able to like make an expression or like a hand gesture and that will do things, which means that like this service isn't just learning what's in your home and what you do with the things in your home. It's it's learning your facial expressions and your gestures and like what they mean and interpreting those at yeah. all times. I can kind of explain where Oculus, which is owned yeah. by Facebook, I think they're technically renaming Oculus uh, yeah. in spring to just calling it the MetaQuest. Um, yeah. But so the where what? At- wait, wait, wait. The MetaQuest? That, 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 that's what they're calling it. Instead of instead yeah. of Oculus Dear Quest, it's going to be MetaQuest. Um, okay. <laughs> so where, where they're at right now is basically uh, the only kind of real-world interactivity that they have for their VR headsets, again, for, like, the consumer models, I don't know what's in, like, development, mm-hmm. um, is uh, hand tracking. This, this is the thing they've been working on for a long time, is that you put on the headset, and yeah. the camera, like, the cameras and depth sensors built into the headset can see your hands. And, like you said, you have, like, gesture controls, uh, where you can do certain things with your hand, and it'll make certain things happen. This is the only interactivity that, that we have. It's okay it's not perfect like it's it it is it is better than a lot of the other hand tracking systems from other companies but like it's it's it is very much a work in progress um and the way to make this work is by is very good depth sensing cameras which i think apple makes some of the best ones right now that they put into the iphone uh the other way of doing this is with uh, lighthouses so this is like separate um separate like uh uh separate cameras that you set up around the corners of your house that project uh, different, like, wavelengths of light, and g- they get it received back so they can map your house um, with not just cameras, but also, like, like in, like, infrared sensors and that kind of thing. So th- these, these are, like, the two methods of doing it. Uh, Facebook is really trying to go full-on full on to the everything is built into the headset thing. So yeah. no, so no, like, lighthouses. Everything is just depth-sensing depth cameras. So... That's why they're working on hand tracking so much because that's something you can actually do. But like, I can't pick up anything 
Um, like the, the, the only thing I can pick up is my controllers, which because they've yeah. sen- they have se- sensors built in, they can be rendered in the actual game uh, the same way like my hand can be. So that, that that's where they're at for that, for the consumer products. Yeah. Again, but more it's, than it's, it's getting just, developed. Again, but. where they're at, you think about what Facebook has already done with the information you provided and how so much of their money comes from selling your data. Yes. Um, the only way for this to work that they've they've po- is that the cameras posited, are always watching everything it, yeah. every moment of your existence including like your micro expressions is which being is why tracked. i keep my oculus and, in a tiny little box yeah and, um, here's, here's, and, and here's the thing if they were to actually develop the technology which i don't think is impossible although it's no, not it's particularly not close um it's not going to be cheap to store all that so in order to make it's it be worthwhile cloud-based. outside well it's going to be cloud-based but in order to make it like cloud isn't free um, no, and in order you're to, gonna have to pay. Yeah. Like, uh, you're gonna have to pay well, a subscription, probably. I, I, I think you'll pay some, but I think in order to make it affordable, um, so that more people are on it, they're just going to sell sell your data to advertisers. Your data in a way yeah. that has never been in a and and the government will have access to it. Like, yeah. it is. It's actually like the the thing that he is actually proposing here is I want to build a machine god that knows your sins, like that yeah, knows when your heart everything. rate is elevated, they that knows what it looks house. like before yeah. you smile, that can predict like when you're about to make a gesture or laugh because it 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 is so accurately mapped your body and motions. Um, it's actually a nightmare. Like when yeah. you really think about what he is yeah. trying to build here, and it's like, well, what's what, what's the actual use case for this? And it's like, well, okay, so you have a, you have a bunch of special forces guys. You put them in a VR thing, and then mm-hmm. you know you can you can you you can have them drill on knowing exactly where all the rooms in the houses and where mm-hmm. everyone is in where everyone is in a house at any given time. And it's like, oh, hey, this this is going to be great. This is yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, they have a. So there is a little bit here briefly about where like Mark talks about uh, how the last year or so has been um, fucking uh, the, the term he uses is humbling for them. Um, oh, God. Yeah. And you you kind of think that like he's about to say that like, oh, because we we made life dramatically worse and our service was integral in several ethnic cleansings and a couple of civil wars and like hate crimes on a scale that was unimaginable before it it really came into being or that we thought had been at least we thought had been consigned to a century or so ago before Facebook came into being but no that's not why it's humbling why he says it's been humbling is that Facebook has been developing services for other platforms like the App Store where they don't have total control and that sucks and that's like the thing that that's the that's him admitting a little bit that like a big part of this is they're trying to build a service the entire internet gets filtered through that they completely control so that yeah. they are are never in anyone else's wheelhouse. Like everything is done through Facebook and with Facebook's approval, as opposed to them they having to, to get Apple to say authority. yes to something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Face, Facebook, Facebook is going to become the state. Yeah, and that's the thing that trying to do. It says so much about Mark that he's like, "What's humbling isn't all of the mistakes I've made. It's that periodically I have not had total control." Um, it's great. Um, he then from immediately from this says that if we all work at it, uh, all of us, the metaverse can reach a billion people by the next decade, um, which is very funny. Yeah, um, yeah. That he thinks that that's like an enticing fucking thing. So one of the use cases they try to present is they have a beauty influencer who like made like a, a fucking candle line or something uh, that she sold on Instagram and she's she's very successful on Instagram. They bring this lady in and number one, as soon as they started interviewing her, 
it, it's it's what I was saying about, yeah, have a hire a celebrity to do this, Mark. You're not charismatic. She's immediately the most engaging person in the entire presentation because she's a successful, in, like she's someone who understands how she appears on camera, um, how to make herself seem likable on camera, how to like interact with the world on a camera. And nobody else in this video understands that. Um, which is just funny. It's not particularly like say anything other than that, like, yeah, have professionals do difficult things, Mark. Don't don't hire your weird, gawky engineering staff to like be the faces of this thing. They're not good at this and neither are you. I, I, um, ju I just want to point out, so he says that like, he, he yeah. can get 1 billion people the next decade. So yeah. far, there's only been 16 million VR headsets sold ever. Yeah. So getting that to the point of a billion seems like uh, quite quite the challenge. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a challenge, you, but I, you could look at, like, how quickly smartphones went from, Yeah, like, except smartphones were useful in improving the yes. world in very obvious ways. Yes. Yes. Whereas the metaverse, and even VR in general, doesn't improve the world for most people in obvious ways. Y yeah, but that but that's kind of what I'm saying, is that, like, the thing that is stupid and doomed about this isn't like, oh, you would have to sell so many headsets. If it was legitimately something every single person wanted on their head, it, they would sell a billion. They would yeah. sell a billion in a couple of years, you know? Um, but they haven't made that look like like so this this beauty influencer thing is an example of them trying to like explain here's something that people will find cool about the metaverse um and the way they do it is like talking about how you can have a digital storefront where like people can't just buy products but they can interact with you um she talks about how it'll be good for letting her interact with her fans by like bringing them into my home oh um, god which sounds like a fucking that nightmare. sounds like a Sorry. nightmare yeah, we love Christ. our fans but like no, no i do not want anyone shit. from Reddit i don't want anybody my in house. my goddamn home no, no. <laughs> um i barely want my friends in my home half the time like absolutely not um they didn't present us with a use case of how a brand, in this case, this like candle company this lady made that's big on Instagram, could release like a new candle flavor and launch a digital experience with it so you can buy both real and digital products. It's kind of unclear in the video whether or not you're paying for the digital experience or is it like free when you buy the candle? Um, yeah, this is what like, so I don't, games is like developing. Yeah. It's like, you know, dropping products at the same time in the real world, in the digital world. But like the, the digital version is free because it's like because it's like an ad, right? You could yeah. try something out virtually before you buy it physically. And that's what like Epic Games is doing. And honestly, I think Epic's version of the metaverse is slightly more hinged. They understand um, more what people actually want. Yeah, because like all the stuff they're trying with Fortnite, again, it doesn't seem fun for me, but at least it's like an extension of how people use the internet already. Whereas yeah. Facebook's is not that. Yeah, and and Mark never really understood what people wanted. He he accidentally yeah. did Facebook when trying to make something yeah. else. Like he wanted exactly. a place to share pictures of ladies he thought was hot. Um, and he accidentally built a thing that like gave people something they did want, which was a way to stay in contact with their friends from high school and college as they grew older. Right. Like yeah. that was the thing about Facebook that made it get huge originally. Um, and he hasn't learned anything since he's just been smart. He's he's hired people who are smart enough to be like, hey, Instagram's probably going to be a big deal Buy that. You now. should buy it. Yeah. You know, um, like that. That, But I, I haven't seen anything that's made me think like Mark gets what people want. And this has just made it clear that like he absolutely doesn't. So I want to play this video of like, this is the digital experience to go with this fucking candle that they're, they're framing as like a piece of art that everybody's going to want to interact with I'm, who likes I'm so candles. Thrilled. I'm so thrilled um, to watch it. It's, it's incredible. Cause it again, feels like a nightmare. I am. A, I am a big candle fan. So same here. Butterfly effect transports us to It's like a shitty arboretum. I, I don't see what this has to do with candles. 
to Jackie as we walk through this amazing world. What does the metaverse mean to you? I just feel like this is like endless possibilities with my imagination. I can't even begin to imagine. But I, I don't understand. What does that have to do with candles? I uh, yeah, like they have it again. Like there's nothing. I can in walk there. around they talk about, like. Why can't I ma- begin to imagine all the things people are going to do? I can well, walk around digital spaces on my quest. Yeah. It's again, it's fun for like 30 seconds. And yeah. then you see everything and you're like, oh, well, I can't touch it or smell it yeah. or actually feel it or do anything. So I'm going to go back and have a soda and I don't know, yeah. play and like read a book or something. <laughs> like, And they, they, they've brought in this influencer who like used one of their other services in a way they hadn't initially intended and was successful in that, which is not a bad idea on its surface. Like, yeah, bring in creative people and let them play around and make something new to show people how exciting this is, right? That's the smart thing to do. But all they've presented is like, look, it's a tiny little weird arboretum you can walk around in after buying a candle. And it's like, well, I like candles, but that that's not a, fun. That, that doesn't sound like a fun addition. Yeah. It's, it's a candle like buying process. The whole part of the metaverse is like making like interactivity more, like being be yeah. able to interact with with digital things. And like, that's not interacting. That's just walking around. Like, unless I can like, Take of like a bazooka and blow up the arbor like ar- arboretum. Or fuck the candle, you know. Or Let fuck, me the, fuck can- the candle. Like, like, that's, that's, like, like you have to do something. Like all of the VR games that are fun, like 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 a uh, super hot or so- like something. It's about you know picking up objects in VR and throwing them at people. That's fun. Yeah. And you like so unless I can pick up this candle and assault people with it in the game, I don't see what really the dry like yeah. what's what's exciting about this. You were saying something, Chris? Oh, well, I guess. You know, the, the, the thing I keep coming back to with this is that the only way this and this literally any of this makes any sense if it's just like a chip in your brain. And yeah. Because like, yes. like, all of it, all of it is built around that. But it's but it's not like it can't be like we don't the technology for that won't exist for like ages. And so they're, it's like it's like it's like they're, they're selling some of it definitely is headset based like that Arboretum thing. But yeah, for a lot that, of, for a yeah, lot but, of but, it, but even yeah, but like I mean, I think even that right, like. Okay, so why would you want like, yeah, you're, you were saying like, why would you it, it's like, okay, it's, it's interesting for like. 10 minutes right yeah the, the only most. way that would be like the only way that would be an actually interesting experience is if you could get all of the full sensory experience if you could it, smell you and feel yeah. yeah right and that that's 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 like that's that's the thing where like this yeah. thing only yeah. makes sense if it's like a brain chip it, well i mean there's there's two versions there's one it's a brain chip or two it's a video game yeah and epic games is doing the thing where it's a video game and yeah, that and makes that slightly seems smarter more sense. to me yes yeah yeah but like they don't you know but they're they're trying to sell like and i i think part of what's going on here is also just like this is this is designed to like like this is designed to like trick Silicon Valley investors. Yes, yes. that is, that is like, what's going on. Yeah, and, and those people, I think, are just gonna be like, oh, we'll we'll have brain chips eventually, and so we'll, we'll just we'll dump talk another. About, we'll probably talk about that yeah. part more at the end because yeah, this is just a scam. This is just a investors. scam, and it is like again to talk about like the dystopian aspects of this, Chris. As you brought up, one of the aspects is that like it's a, a complete panopticon of perfect surveillance if they actually make this thing. And number two is the only way to do most of what they're talking about. That's cool is to give Mark Zuckerberg physical control over human beings, brain chemistry on a global scale, which I think is a bad idea. I'm not going to sign up for that. <laughs> I'm not going to sign up for that. No. I don't, I don't want to walk around in a weird candle room that badly. Like, um, to, like to your point, Chris, about like how it's, you know, there's no sensory stuff is like, yeah, like the most popular VR games the reason why they work so well, and the reason why they don't like break the uncanny valley, is because you're in like a barren land, like like you know, like Beat yeah. Saber. You're not in a place, you know. You're yeah. in this in the game interface. For like for Super Hot, you're in like whitewashed, abstract, like concrete yeah. spaces, yeah. right? So like, there's nothing. There is nothing to smell or feel. So like, you don't feel like you're missing anything because you're in a very like stripped down version of reality. 
there is a, a really good uh, VR game. I forget what it's called, but it's it's based on like an office, and you're like fighting robots to break out of like this capitalist office room, and it's cool because like yeah, it's miserable because it's like it's like an office space. You feel like you're in an office because it, nothing about it's exciting, right? VR yeah. games that are in like lush worlds, they, they feel so much more like disconnected yeah. because you have like a weird like you have yeah. you have like you have like an uncanny valley thing, but ext- yeah. instead of like a face or a person, it's like an environment. We're running low on time. I want to move to something that I think is important here, which is there is one moment in this video where they try to address the fact that they've done a tremendous amount of damage to the world and have repeatedly failed to, like, uh, anticipate dangers that their services have. So they need to, like, deal with that at some point. And this is like, well, what about if, like, what about bad things that could happen? What if, like, what about, like, unintended things? What about, like, ways in which this could be harmful to society that you haven't foreseen? So because they're not completely stupid, in order to address that, they bring on um, a well-dressed, uh, or not well-dressed, but they bring on, like, a friendly British man um, who kind of kind of reads as, like, a like a scientific kind of expert guy. They bring on a, a, a charming British person to like talk okay. about how they're going to not not destroy the world. And this is very telling. So far, it's, it's such visionary stuff. But as you mentioned early on, with all big technological advances, there are inevitably going to be in all sorts of challenges and uncertainties. And I know you've talked about this a bit already, but people want to know how we're going to do all this in a responsible way, and especially that we play our part in helping to keep people safe and protect their privacy online. Yeah, that's right. This is incredibly important. The way I look at it is that in the past, the speed that new technologies emerged sometimes left policymakers and regulators playing catch up. So on the one hand, companies get accused of charging ahead too quickly, and on the other, Tech people feel that progress can't afford to wait for the slower pace of of regulation. And I really think that it doesn't have to be the case this time round, because we have years until the metaverse we envision is fully realized. So this is the start of the journey, not the end. So that's telling uh, that he's like, we don't need to worry about. Like we don't need to like uh, it'll be fine. It'll get regulated properly. It'll be safe enough because it's going to take so long to figure all this out that surely we will anticipate and deal with all of the potentially toxic side effects of this technology ahead of time. Um, And if you believe that, I would say take a look at Facebook's track record with that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But they are smart in having a charming British man do it. That's the right guy to have in, in, in the only aspect of good casting in this. That is the right guy to have come on and try to allay people's fears um, that this will destroy society. You bring a you bring a charming British man in. You know, that's how you do that kind of thing. Um, That's when I get canceled for the things I've been doing overseas. um, I'm going to hire a British person to defend myself. Do do they make any more comments about like AR glasses or VR? Yes, uh, quite a few. I wanted to move on to that, um, even though, yeah, we're we're, so um, they talk about they have a whole section where they're they're talking about the actual glasses they have. So they they announced, number one, they have a, a project. The goal, as he repeatedly says, is to make a, quote, normal, good looking pair of glasses um, yeah, that obviously. do all this stuff, which Just obviously, that is, yes. that is the end goal. Yeah. Um, and he, he does in order as like a proof of concept. He shows us these AR Ray-Bans that actually look legitimately rad. They look like normal, at least the, the I haven't touched a pair of these in my hands. But the 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 videos that are supposed to be these real products show a pair of what look like normal Ray-Bans that you can take pictures and videos with. You can answer phone calls on. You could do like video cool. phone calls yeah. on yeah. them and stuff. Actually like they, they seem neat and like they look like normal glasses. Yeah. Um, and that is pretty cool. Um, they go kind of pivot from that to announcing that like they have this new thing, Project Nazar, 
Um, which, oh, I looked up what Nazar means a little bit ago. It's probably um, dystopian. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it was just, yeah. Uh, it, it's a town, oh, it's a surf spot, right? It's a place in, I think, Portugal where there's like great waves and okay. Mark Zuckerberg's really into surfing. He plays a surfing game at one point in this that is one of the most, um. Embarrassing things I've Embarrassing had. things yeah. I've seen in my entire fucking life. Um, but yeah, so Project Nazar is the, supposed to be like the first true like VR glasses. So they they do the the good thing, which is like here's the real technology, these Ray Bans, and look, these are pretty neat. Obviously, that doesn't come close to what they're promising. Um, and this whole thing where they talk about what the uh, the glasses, which they say they're making good progress on, are going to do, we don't ever see any fucking glasses. Yeah, um, yep, yeah, and and that's because they're not really close uh, to 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 working yet. Uh, I, I yeah, definitely think really hard that the AR glasses are going to be the way to act. Like, if the goal is to integrate digital spaces into the physical space, right? I think I, I think it's a good goal because what what that's yeah. going to do that's going to make the digital space less fake, right? It, it, it's yeah. injecting that into the actual real world. So I think that will actually really help with like disassociative stuff, is because it's actually in it's actually in the real world as well. I think that's going to be wonderful yeah. when that gets developed. And I think the glasses are are definitely going to be a thing within the next ten to twenty years. There is yeah, ways of the, like a, like a, figure a, illuminating glass on the side to make like yeah. you know like a, what it looks like an image. This is definitely going to be a thing that's going to be possible. Yeah, my big figure aspects are, of it out. Like yeah. surveillance and privacy is like the big yeah. big fears for that because we're nowhere close to hacking the brain enough to feel sensations. And like the only thing like I've played a lot of VR. The only thing that you can feel in VR is fear. That's yeah. the only thing that VR is capable of replicating that's good. as as a feeling. It's like you can feel terrified in VR. That's that's yeah. th- that's it. You can't ever well, okay, feel there's, like there's one other thing. You can feel exhausted. Yeah, yeah. and tired. I played, I played, I played a bow and, and arrow game, and I was doing like bow draws for like four yes. hours, and I was like, oh, "We've man. we've developed a way to make you frightened and tired." <laughs> that is what VR is best, <laughs> which like, is all of, by the way what Twitter does normally. It's all true. Of, <laughs> <laughs> all of like all of like the Resident Evil VR games, yeah. yeah, they're gonna making you tired and terrified, and that's um, kind of it. <laughs> so we we have to close out, but I want to do that by playing Mark Zuckerberg lamenting the internet that he played a major role in in building as a way to talk about why we need a metaverse because it's kind of funny. We're allowed to build and use are more tightly controlled than ever, and high taxes on creative new ideas are stifling. This is not the way that we are meant to use technology. The metaverse gives us an opportunity to change that and build it well. But it's going to take all of us, creators, developers, companies of all sizes. Together, we can finally put people at the center of our technology and deliver an experience where we are present with each other. Yeah. Um, what what a ghoul. What yeah, a what ghoul. a monster. Like, all of that's nonsense. Number one, you're not, you're one of the people who has turned the internet into an expensive walled garden. It didn't used to be this way. Then Facebook swooped in, made themselves for free, um, like, integral to all content, and then started charging those content creators and, like, fucking them around and lying to them, which led to the destruction of a huge number of websites and a tremendous amount of digital culture. Like, you're why it feels like a dead walled garden, and everything you've presented in this video makes the metaverse feel like a dead walled garden, but I want to play his last lines in the, uh, in this video. Um, cause this is him kind of summing up his vision for the future via the metaverse. And now it is time to take everything that we've learned and help build the next chapter. I'm dedicating our energy to this more than any other company in the world. And if this is the future that you want to see, then I hope that you will join us because the future 
is going to be beyond anything we can imagine. I agree with that part, Mark. The future is going to be beyond what you can imagine. What a ghoul. Yeah. Because you have it's no just, imagination. It's, yeah. just, it's just using trendy tech terms to trick investors into giving them billions of dollars. Yeah. That's like, right? That's that's all it is because all, all of this, like, this, like, haptic feedback, replicating, like, human feelings and stuff, we're nowhere close to that. And when we do, it's going to be dystopian. But we're, we're not close to it. And it's going we, to be dystopian or it's going to be better in ways that like we can't yet conceive of um and then eventually it will be destroyed for profit if it actually gets cool like the old internet was yeah it's yeah yeah it's it's yeah but i think but both this and even a lot like a a lot of like the epic stuff just seems a a, 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 it's just the new way Mm. that tech companies that's where they think the money vault is, is by using these terms and they think using these terms is going to get them lots of extra investor money um, so because the actual technology is nowhere really close to this and it's not what people want out of the Internet anyway. It absolutely is not. But I don't know. I think this was important. I think yeah. Facebook is important and has a major impact on the way the Internet is continuing to evolve, um, usually in negative ways. But this is how these people who are doing a lot of damage view the future. So you should know what they're looking at and what yeah. they anticipate. But I, I think I think there, there's a kind of optimistic note to this, though, right, which is like. Okay, so we, we've we've reached the point where like even like Boris Johnson is going like, oh God, climate change is coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is the best they've got. Yeah. Right. This like, is their vision have, of the they future. They have no. After they have yeah. nothing. They have nothing. And you know, I think like one of the only ways we can win is if we're facing a uniquely incompetent ruling class. Yeah. And if it if the rule if the if the guy were if the guy we have to deal with in order to like not drown every single whale and like have half of the world's cities consumed by the ocean is Mark Zuckerberg like we got yeah. a shot <laughs> we yeah. got a shot like, I think I, there are some smarter people that aren't yeah that this operate is not, behind the scenes right like sure yeah I, yeah um. but I I don't think I think that's a nice note to end on because it is it is worth. The nice thing about this is how clearly they don't understand what the future's going to look like online. Yeah. Um, they have ways in which they're trying to direct the future, and aspects of that will come true. Like their VR will succeed in some form at some point, and it will be potentially an unprecedented surveillance breakthrough that I mean, is, like, has some unsettling implications. Yeah, and as well like, as some positive metaverse, ones. Yeah. Metaverse stuff's getting developed by a lot of other stuff. I think the the move by Twitter to create like this, like uh, they, it's called like t- like Twitter Spaces. Yeah. Where it's like this, like you know, basically like voice chat room. Like a lot of people are moving towards this concept where we try to like in- inject more like in-person in- interactivity into this virtual framework, right? We yeah. saw this with like uh, with like a Clubhouse last year during during the pandemic, where people yeah. like watching like Netflix in the quote same room, right? Yeah. Like we're seeing people try to do this with varying mi- mixed success, but this is the way tech is 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 inching. So it is a good idea to keep your eye on it because yeah, yeah. it has a lot of implications for like so- privacy and advertising and all that kind of stuff. We'll continue to cover aspects of this, talk about the technology, talk about the surveillance implications, talk about the visions these people have. But I think this has been these episodes have been useful. And like, here's what Mark thinks is coming. Here's what Facebook is pouring like 10 billion dollars into. It's dumb as shit. Have a nice day. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. podcast all right well i've done my job for the day wow even by our standards that's a that's an intro that's actually one of your better ones (laughs) thank you you. this is of course it could happen here a show about how things um aren't going so great kind of falling apart crumbling a bit but also maybe things could be better that would be nice let's try and do that Today is one of the Maybe Things Could Be Better episodes, and we are talking about the ongoing wave of strikes. Uh, we had Striketober last month with uh, John Deere strikes and and, and strikes, uh, and, and like, uh, whatchamacallit, a couple of different food companies, bunch of strikes. Um, and today, we would like to get an update on 
all the motherfuckers who are out there striking for better conditions um, and and better treatment. Um, and today, for that purpose, we've brought on the great Kim Kelly. Kim, you are a journalist uh, who focuses a hell of a lot on labor. You've been up and down uh, to the, some of the coal strikes that have been going on. You were there for the Amazon um, attempt to form the union in, um, oh, geez, was that uh, Arizona? Alabama. Um, Alabama, Alabama. Um, and you're writing a book on the history of labor um, in the United States. So I, I'd like to just kind of turn the floor over to you. There's well, a floor. There is a, okay, there is a floor. Yeah. There's it's no filthy. ceiling, there's a floor. It is filthy. Just as well, a heads up. You know, we're doing our best, aren't we? Yeah. No, Some of we're, us are. We are, yeah. You are. We are not. <laughs> I am. I'm trying to keep up with all this mm-hmm. labor action, this exciting action, mm-hmm. hot labor action. Yeah, tell us <laughs> some hot labor action stories. Uh, so as you mentioned, we're just kind of coasting off of the peak of Striketober, which was such a fun thing to kind of see explode in the mainstream consciousness. Like usually labor stories... They're a big deal to the people that are involved in them and people in the labor world who are watching and like rooting for them. But they don't necessarily end up on like, you know, the mainstream, like the t- they don't end up on the TV. They don't end up with like fancy old guys talking about it on Dateline or whatever. Right. But that's something that happened. And I think there's been a real shift in consciousness that is the company that. And of course, you know, it's like Striketober is fun. There's all these these big strikes happening at the same time. But we, of course, need to remember that that didn't happen in a vacuum. There's people on strike now who have been on strike since before since before it was cool, right? Since much earlier. Like, shout out to the St. Vincent nurses up in Massachusetts and to the coal miners in Brookwood, Alabama, Warrior Met, who have both been on strike for over eight months. And they Jiminy kind of Christmas, right? So literally, like they're. Like they're in the middle of their toy drives for their children because they've been on strike for so long. And they kind of got a little bit left out of the conversation around striketober. And I think that just kind of shows that we need to be paying attention even when it's not as flashy or new or exciting. I mean, striketober is exciting, but, you know, there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think is interesting and important Especially as we head into uh, strikes giving, which I guess we're doing. Yeah, <laughs> strikes giving, yeah. strikesmas, striking time. Strikeuary. Strikeuary. I guess we Saint can use strikeuary for a couple of days. Strike. The fourth of strike July. Yeah, it's it gets worse early in the year. Really until we get to Labor Day and by then, yeah, God. Yeah, <laughs> Strikers Day. That one works pretty well. I'm I'm also yeah. a fan of Strikentine's Day. Um Strikentine's Day. That's cute. Yeah. yeah Love yeah, and rage, can, baby. We can keep this going. Yeah. <laughs> strike a ween. Well, strike what strike see, a ween. There's a missed opportunity there. Although <laughs> that that frightens me, Garrison, that the band Ween might go on strike, and I don't oh, know no. that society could. What handle would we do? That. We wouldn't have our our. We would we would be completely out of Ween. Our reserves of Ween aren't going to last long if they stop. Yeah, what that's a reference. Yeah, there's been a a, tr- a tragic shortage of Ween for years now. I don't know that we can handle a strike. There Please has, continue, Kim. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize you were a nerd, Robert. This is this kind of throws some things into question. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as, as a heavy metal dirtbag, I'm like contractually obligated to say things like that. But um, mm-hmm. as I was pontificating uh, a minute ago, oh, right. So as we go into mm-hmm. strikes giving, there are still more big strikes on the horizon and potential big strikes on the horizon. But part of the story that I think is also very energizing and important is the organizing that's happening in the new unions that are hopefully going to end up being formed 
not necessarily as a result of this wave of attention, but they're kind of caught up in the tide. I mean, we mm-hmm. look at the Starbucks workers in Buffalo who have scared the shit out of their employers to the point where they're flying executives in to follow them around the store and be like, please don't vote for a union. We need all of our billions of dollars. We can't share. Or, you know, even workers at Wirecutter who are threatening to strike on Black Friday and their whole thing is telling people what stuff to buy. Yeah. You know, in McDonald's workers in I think 10 different, either 10 different cities or 10 different states, 10 different locations just went out on like a one day strike over sexual harassment in their workplace. Kroger workers are taking a strike authorization vote in Texas. We have multiple Amazon organizing attempts happening in Staten Island and a rerun of the election coming up in Bessemer, Alabama. And there's just so much happening that... You know, I, I hope that the novelty idea of the strikes to over strikes giving, I hope like that was fun, but I hope now that people are paying attention that they stay interested and realize that, you know, labor stories, maybe it's not necessarily always like a big strike or like a cool picket line to look at, but there's a lot going on. Like every story is a work story. Every story is a labor story. And people seem like they're finally catching on to the fact that, yo, we're all workers and wow, cool things happen when we come together. Yeah, I I hope that too, and I hope that um you know the 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 word on everybody's lips who's I don't know coming at this from kind of a little bit of a more uh, either radical or desperate point of view depending on how you want to frame it is like general strike general strike and you know there's there's been some there's been people online who keep saying like okay well we're all just gonna go on on Black Friday everybody general strike and it's like yeah well you don't you don't set that up on Twitter like the the, the unions that are striking now have strike funds and and put a lot of thought into it and have right. like had to take there's things you have to do in order to not irresponsibly like just screw over a bunch of working people um but yeah. it is like i i'm a believer in the potential of something like a general strike to to force significant uh concessions um i mean if we I, did it right yeah, big, I guess I, 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 it, I mean, it's a huge if because it's never really effectively been like there's been pieces of it done. Like we saw, I think the closest we've gotten in like my lifetime has been when the uh, the airline workers threatened to go on strike over the uh, over the budget thing. And you just saw the federal government go, oh, fuck. Nope. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> we can actually pass this thing. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing like that threat that I think that when Sarah Nelson said that even like hinted towards that in 2019 during the government shutdown that sort of that was a tipping point i think that's the first time people would well really was probably the first time in many people's lifetimes that an actual labor leader with that platform had even mentioned those words because general like general strikes historically kind of are more situated in that late 19th century early 20th century like labor swinging its dick around era and we've been kneecapped so much that yeah. that doesn't feel as, as possible. But I mean, the fact that she said it and she was part of the airline industry, if we're ever going to actually, you know, bring capital to its knees, we're going to need the transportation workers. We're going to need the dock workers. We're going to need to, like, actually analyze who is moving things around the country, who's making sure things work, and how can we get them to put down to down their tools and be like, okay, we're going to yeah. do something about this. You know, the whole general strike idea I mean, I mean, and arguably, like one of the first ones was, uh, you know, Black Reconstruction. The uh, W. Uh, the book. There's a uh, this argument that the first general strike was enslaved enslaved people leaving the plantations and and withdrawing their labor from that situation. Like that was a form of striking. 
And I think the general strike is kind of an amorphous idea, especially online, yeah. as more people learn about labor and learn about it. But it's also like kind of a specific thing. <laughs> like, yeah. You can't just declare like, okay, we're all not going to go to work tomorrow. Like, cool. But there's so much planning that goes into it to make sure that people are able to do that and sustain that. And the people that are traditionally, you know, already left out or the most vulnerable and marginalized, like that their needs are prioritized because the people that can afford to declare general strike and not show up for a week, like that's all well and good for them. But what about everyone else who can barely afford to go to work at all? Yeah, I've had these arguments with people online and it's often like, well, you're saying we shouldn't do, like if we just do it, people will figure it out. Like the infrastructure will be built after the fact. And I'm like, that's, I'm I'm glad that you're in a situation where you feel like you could you could handle that kind of uncertainty. But like a single mother of four who relies on her her job to like keep them fed and alive isn't going to be like someone will figure out how to feed my kids. Like, we'll, we'll, <laughs> it'll, like that's not right. how people work, you know? Yeah, this is where having like a robust commitment to mutual aid and yes. strike funds and like an actual com- fabric. Like the, having the fabric of community where you can depend on your neighbors instead of never talking to them. Like a general strike would have a huge impact, but on who? Like who would it hurt more if you didn't plan yeah. it properly? If you didn't have a, if you didn't have an actual grassroots network of people ready to help? If you didn't yeah. have the understanding that not everyone can just go run off in the streets. Some people like have mobility issues. Some people have children. Some people are older or sicker. Like there's so much that goes into it. Yeah, it's like your car is fucked up and you know you need to take it in to get some stuff fixed or it's eventually going to break down entirely. But that doesn't mean the right solution is just get in there and, and start hitting shit with a hammer. Like, you need to, <laughs> there needs to be, like, some systemic way you approach it, right? Like, there's a proper way to fix an engine. Um, right, and we can do that. Like, we yeah. can start building those networks. We can start – you can organize your workplace and plug into the – into like the organized labor framework, which obviously has many flaws, not as radical as I would and many other people would like it to be, but they know how to do this shit. Like mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of different pieces that can be pulled together in different organizations and populations that need to work together if we're actually going to accomplish something like this. Yep. And I don't know if people are ready to put in all that work because it's more fun to tweet yeah, but I, I, mean, I am wondering. <laughs> yeah, as they say in Alabama, bless their hearts. You're you're spending a tremendous. I mean, as you just noted, you're spending a tremendous amount of time on the ground with a lot of these people, talking with them. Are you are you seeing kind of how how are you hearing them talk about the other strike efforts? You know, in other industries that are going on right now, because it has been more in the news than it's been at any point I can recall in the recent past. And I'm wondering how. In places like Bessemer, you know, in places like, um, you know, that coal miners strike you've been at, like, how are they being, are, to what extent are they talking about other strike efforts? Like, is that, does that seem to be something that there's a lot of kind of consciousness and discussion about, or is it just kind of in the background? I mean, it really depends. I, like you said, I've spent, I've spent most of my time with the coal miners over the past year. So I've been writing a book and that's been my yeah. one, uh, my one fun thing, but I've been, I mean, I talk to them every single day and I've been to Alabama lots of times and I, you know, I, I'm in a group chat with the wives. Like I, I, I know I have a decent grasp of what's going on. And honestly, the thing about it is that some, there, there are some folks who are very engaged and who have made Twitters and they have their Facebook groups and they do pay attention to what's happening. And I do think mm-hmm. they feel that kind of, excitement and that widespread sense of solidarity but one thing to re- that's important to remember especially for workers who are already disadvantaged or they're dealing with low-wage labor is like it's really hard to go on strike 
Like there's a lot of shit they have to figure out. Like there's kids, there's health issues. There's how am I going to pay my rent? Like like funds are great, but they don't cover everything. Like I think that's one of the realities that maybe gets sort of glossed over because we're also online and we like to you and me, it feels like, oh, everyone's fucking stoked about these strikes. But for someone in rural Alabama who is just hoping this strike is over soon so they can go back to work and have some financial stability, they're not necessarily reading your tweets or like signing up for webinars or even paying attention to like cool other strike efforts. I'm sure some some folks are aware and they find have that time to plug in, but most people are just trying to get by. And like these are folks who spend like eight hours a day on the picket lines and there's no cell phone service out where their picket lines are. Like yeah. there's only so much that a normal, regular worker on the picket line can do to keep up. Yeah. And um you came into this, I think unlike a lot of the people who are who are actually striking, you, you came into this with a, lo- a lifelong history of the in- like of interest in kind of uh, uh, labor justice movements and, and whatnot, which I don't think most people who are in unions necessarily spend a ton of time studying the last hundred years of labor relations. Um, what has surprised you? Like, what what have what what has like been a new realization that you've gotten since you started covering this stuff on the ground in this most recent period? So the thing that really sticks with me, and I'm going back to my minors again because that's you know my. Mm-hmm. Where that where the most familiarity, but something that I think has so much potential, and I'm not entirely sure how to articulate what that potential is. But so something I have seen is when this strike began, most not all, but the majority of the folks involved in this particular strike were conservative Christian people who were a lot of them voted for Trump. A lot of them were like just in that world, maybe not like you know wild MAGA people, but that's just what was the norm where they are in their community. And they don't really think about it that much. But there are some people that I've seen, especially those who are involved in the mutual aid efforts or have been, who have seen Birmingham DSA come out, who have kind of taken this kind of like wider view of what's happening, how they fit in. I've seen their politics and their perspective shift. Like there are some people who are like straight up socialists now that mm-hmm. seven months ago would have probably spit in your face. Or at least given you a hell of a look if you had even suggested such a thing. And this is a small sample size, and this is a unique situation. But I think it really speaks to the potential there to like reach people who are very ideologically, politically different from what we maybe think of as labor people, as progressive, radical, whatever. People on like our team, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the power of the strike and the power of labor is that there is so much... There, there's kind of an inherent common ground because so many people most people a lot of people most people have a job a lot of people hate their boss you can kind of build from that very very low baseline and find more common ground and kind of you can you can work towards a better understanding like maybe you're not going to be best friends but you can potentially shift someone's harmful worldview by exposing them to new ideas once they trust that you're not just there to tell them they're wrong and stupid and bad you're like look we, I, we're, we're coming at this like, I, I'm going to talk to you like a person. I understand we see the world differently. But like, you know, I'm here to support you. I'm here listening to you. Maybe you could listen to what I have to say, too. Maybe it might change how you see things. And sometimes it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what else works, Kim? Blowing shit up. Well, okay. Alleg- <laughs> allegedly. Um, In Minecraft. Yeah, I was gonna say cap adds 
Capitalisms. Ads and services. Um, but I like your answer better. So let's just <laughs> let's just let's just roll out with that. Material support, right? Like yeah. another concrete example there. The Birmingham DSA has been very active in fundraising and showing up and just providing support for the miners mm-hmm. and, and the people on strike. And this is not necessarily a population of people that like the idea of socialism, whatever idea of it is that they hold, because Fox News and Rush Limbaugh are, are big cultural yeah. standbys there. Like, whatever they think socialism is, and then have a bunch of socialists show up and just practice solidarity and mutual aid and practice socialism. And they're like, oh, these, these guys are great. Thank you for coming out. It's things like that, where it's like, I feel like so much of, of radical politics and various, you know, various tendencies, there's just like a branding problem. And there's a propaganda problem on the, yeah. the right wing and the mainstream media doesn't tell anybody what anything means. Like, yeah, that's, and it's, pro- that's it's, a broader conversation, right? But it's the, yeah. yeah, I felt for a while, like one of the things that leftist organizers need to get better at doing is, is being willing to like drop names when they're not productive. Like, okay, maybe these people because of the media environment they've grown up in are never going to want to consider themselves socialists, but if they are willing to organize together and support the efforts of other working people to organize together against uh, the capital holding class, like then, okay, like what is it? Why do you need them to like start quoting Karl Marx or is it just cool that you've, (laughs) you've got them doing what they like? Yeah. I, 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 that makes a lot of sense to me that like, yeah, some that you can get a lot of these people on board with again, pretty radical things. If you're, if you're kind of approaching it from within their world, from within like, I'm not trying to talk to you about burning down the system. I'm trying to talk to you about how you get what you need. And it just so happens that how you get what you need um, is taking the system on in a very direct way. Um, I mean, so many ideas that are painted as radical just like aren't. Mm-hmm. Like it's normal people caring for them. Like for, it is like community care and common sense. Yeah. It's just been politicized to this insane extent yeah, even places like oh sorry, I'm just saying like even like a lot of, a lot of the tenants of mutual aid you can even see pop up in a lot of like church communities as well. At least like yeah. at least like smaller you know closer knit like communities that are actually like based around helping each other. At least I've 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 I've, I've observed that in a lot of my time traveling across the states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge part of it. Like the the church is the only mutual aid option in so many like smaller and more isolated rural communities, or just communities where the church is a big deal. Like there's always ways to chip away at these institutions and eventually hopefully burn them down right without alienating people and making them feel like you're coming in and telling them everything you believe is wrong and i'm and you know making no mistake some of these folks i'm sure they believe things that are absolute garbage and i would never yeah everybody does but yeah you know like there's you know but there's there's just that covering this strike in particular has really just taught me a lot about the gray areas in between not in a like wishy-washy liberal way, but just in a way of like, how do you relate to normal fucking people who see the world differently, but are in yeah. ultimately the same struggle as you? Like, maybe I could, I, I mean, going down there, <laughs> the, the only time I'd been around that many Trump supporters was like at protests where I was yelling at them or like mm-hmm. at my family dinners. So I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't expecting to make friends, but then I did. And I think hopefully we've we've shifted each other's perspectives a little bit in a way that's beneficial. I don't know. It's been in, it's been interesting. You know, yes, yeah. talking to people really is a lot different than tweeting at them. Yeah, as a rule, don't tweet. 
would be my recommendation <laughs> to people. Never. Um, never. Talk Take your. That. Yeah. Talk to or, your neighbors and be nice to people when you buy coffee or food from them. And you'd be yeah. amazed what happens. And, yeah. and t- tell your neighbors, hey, I'm taking my phone down to the river to throw it in. Can I take your phone with me? Can we just all throw our phones in the river? Um, yeah. yeah, you can see how far get you. If, you wanna, <laughs> if you're going to start out being the weird neighbor, it's a strong mm-hmm. start. Look, Who we've already you know? killed the water system, so it's fine. Like, just <sighs> right in the river with the car batteries. You know, <laughs> good for the eels. The thing I love about our show is just the hope is is the incredibly uh, hope injected optimism that we start and end every episode with. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, but I mean like I me, mean like yeah. Get, get, the more people you know in your community, especially people who are like working class, you know, when bad stuff starts happening, the more people you know, the better because that's lot, I'm guessing a lot of the a lot of these people who are like you know like 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 um like old like old u- union workers, they have a lot of like physical skills like like they like they they know how to do a whole bunch of stuff and it might be worth getting to know some of those people even if you know depending where you live like yeah they'll, they'll probably say something not great uh at least for you know the first bit but once you know i i've i've a lot of family in like a rural area of alberta and like yeah my my family is like pretty gay um so you know once you're in close to those people yeah they're they're going to say something that's maybe not great but once they get to like know you and re- like, be like oh like you're another person they like people actually you know people want to be around other people and they'll even change the way they talk to be like oh yeah maybe this isn't the best way to hang out around people because it's going to drive people away so yeah I'll, I'll i'll change the way i say some things because like it turns out people actually like a lot of a lot of folks just kind of want to make their lives a bit better and that's really their main focus yeah um it's, it's hard to know to do that <laughs> And it's 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 just this matter of like so much of what um, so much of what kind of the the way that discourse happens online has poisoned aspects of activism is in like making it difficult for people to relate in that way without feeling like well okay but if I can't get them on board with all of these other things like I can't talk with them or whatever like because they're because they don't agree with yeah, this like, and this and this like we can't organize you know, like no like the purity of ideology yeah right like, I feel like it, most people who aren't terminally online don't even necessarily have like a specific ideology absolutely some, not <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah right like there's just stuff that they have learned or they've decided that is true about the world they just kind of go with it and they'll yeah. like interrogate it all the time and you can like those are people you can talk to and maybe shift like I've, yeah. I've done it with my dad like I've seen it happen with some of these conservative coal miner folks like even yeah. something as small as being able to humanize like like Okay, if you're talking about something, oh, like, well, the thing you said, like, that really upset Joey. And you like Joey, so, like, maybe exactly. think about that. And they'll yeah. probably be chiller because, like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's Joey. I can't, I don't want to be a dick to him. If we can just find a way to enact that on a very broad scale, <laughs> life would be a lot better for a lot of people. Yeah, it's this, it's this dichotomy between a lot of people want to own the folks they see as, like, being against them or being on the other side. But also, people don't want to be a dick to people that like they like you don't want to feel like you're a dick so if you if you lean more into the we're in opposition then you're going to trigger the well i want to i want to make the person who disagrees with me angry side of the brain but if you can lean into the like hey like we can get along like and i and 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 maybe you don't want to feel like an asshole if we get along then 
I don't know. That's a productive place to to continue conversations from, and a good way to shift people. I think. And then when your and then when your area floods because of severe rain yeah. and storms, then we have people that can help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the importance of interacting with people in person, like offline, which is like obviously more difficult to do because we're still trapped in a pandemic. Yeah, there's and not plague. Can be at, like there caveat, 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 but like it's so much easier to talk to someone and kind of and like see the worldview shift or even just humanize yourself to someone who is inclined to not thinking of you as someone worth talking to. Like, yeah, as long as it's not, you're not putting yourself in danger. Like there's, yeah, obviously you know, we're, it's easy we're not for me talking to say about, stuff like this. I'm a blonde lady, you know, but yeah, still, we're not talking about like, Oh, you have to go be friendly to people who like want to murder you because you're trans. No, no it's, it's about, no, we're not saying that. that. But most of these people don't Both think that. People. Maybe they have some regressive attitudes. No, towards, or or they'll know. use the word "gay" to mean something you know not yeah. cool, and you'd be like, "Hey, you know, I have to do it." They'd be like, "Hey, you know, I'm you know I'm actually gay." You know, blah blah blah. Or, or maybe you don't open that. Maybe you do, depending on the situation. To be like, yeah, "Hey, I'll, maybe maybe there's other words that we can use for this because yeah, whatever." Yeah, and and you can shift people into. Uh, uh, a closer alliance um, just by becoming a human in their eyes and also letting them become a human in your eyes, Um, which is necessary. The other option is not a pleasant one, so I would prefer the option where more people grow to see each other as human and worth supporting. Right, that, I know there's this like argument. Tactic to me. Yeah, I know there's this <laughs> argument where like no one is oh like I shouldn't have to educate you. I shouldn't have to put the mm-hmm. time into to shift you and like that is valid. That's fair. Like you shouldn't have to, but ideally, if, no. Yeah, <laughs> no. Right? But, yeah, but, I, it, but if you want to that change to happen, it's probably not going to happen unless you put some effort in because they're probably not gone because they think they're fine. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. There's a bunch of shit that you shouldn't have to do. That we're also all gonna have to do. Like, I, we, I shouldn't, we, I shouldn't have to say, "Hey, guys, maybe we don't kill the ocean. Maybe killing the ocean is a bad idea." Like, I shouldn't have to. No one should have to say that, but we do. Could we like, not? Because we're just, otherwise can going we to just kill the stop? ocean. Yeah. Can yeah. we just not, please? Like, the, the fact just that you shouldn't have to do something also doesn't mean that like the thing doesn't need to be done. And obviously, I don't think that the primary onus on speaking to let's say, the kind of increasingly radicalized uh, white lower middle and middle class. I don't think that falls primarily on on people of color, on on the LGBT community. It falls on people like you and me, Kim, you know? Literally, Um, yeah. Yeah, but it still has to be done. Like, it's a thing that needs to be done. And I'm not saying, hey, you out there who, you know, left where you grew up in rural Alabama because someone was going to fucking murder you and you had to get to a place where you could not deal with that. I'm not saying you need to go rolling back to to Alabama, um, but it's good that people are talking and and working with and trying to build connections with folks out there and change the nature of kind of aspects of the culture and make things better because that needs to be done. We can't just be like, well, fuck some of those people. Yeah, and again, that that is definitely easier if you are like one of the bros, if if you are, you know, a a bigger... Mm -hmm cis adjacent dude yeah that is that is of course going to make things For easier sure. yeah i, I really, mean the, I... Way you, the way you think about it, like that's kind of the tax yeah that's not, not the mm-hmm. right word but the fact that you do feel comfortable and you're you're safe and you're not mm-hmm. under a threat in those spaces because of who you are like as like a white cis or even a white cis lady like you 
the, the, the price you pay for that is making it easier for everyone else to feel that yeah. too. Like exactly. that's the, like that's your job. Other you, people's you, job is to survive and be safe. You can be you the know? one that pushes the boundaries on these things. So when someone says something not great, you can kind of call them out in like a broish way, and they can respond to that a lot better than you know than a, a lot of other people who they don't know. You know, e- screaming mm-hmm. at them in a no context scenario. Yeah. Be like, oh, like oh, you don't. I'm like, a, I'm a pretty lady. You don't want to make me upset by being rude. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. Rude. Yeah. Like, like you shouldn't. You should see this thing as rude and not okay. Like the amount of men who have apologized to me down there for swearing is yep. so funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, man, my dude. I live in Philadelphia, but that's cute. But if mm-hmm. I could just harness any of that, like chivalrous, whatever chivalrous patriarchal viewpoint of like hey apply this to being cool to my trans friends or like mm-hmm. not being rude to anyone else like sure i'm down <laughs> yeah we don't take kindly to misgendering around these parts yeah <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of people at least like you know when i worked at like smaller workplaces you know where it's like a small business where i know the owner the even if me and some other employees want to unionize the prospect is always kind of more weird or challenging because you know it's a smaller business maybe it's like connected to like a larger you know larger overall industry you know like when i was like uh when i when i was like a parkour instructor right i i I had discussions with other with other like employees about doing you know like a a parkour instructors union type thing but but it's 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 hard when there's there's like not many of you or you like you know the owner what would you say is like good good ways to at least get that get that conversation going among other employees and then you know like similar similar examples from other stuff for people who deal with like smaller workplaces that aren't you know like a coal worker they're not working for like amazon or anything you know it's it's more like small local stuff right so like the the most important basic building block of of all this is one-on-one conversations is organizing right and even if you just work with like three or four other people and maybe unionizing in a formal structure doesn't necessarily make sense or it seems like it might be too much of a headache. You're still, you know, like a group of workers coming together is still a union. It doesn't matter what the NLRB has to say about it. And you you have shared interests and shared challenges and there's things at work you probably want to change. So even coming together and discussing that with your coworkers, like there's no law that says you have to be in a union if you want to get some shit done. You can march on your boss, IWW style, and make them and demand a meeting. You can make a petition. You can do public pressure campaigns, like all of the things, well, not all of them, but a lot of the tools that we see organized labor engaging in and unions engaging in, those are, those are uh, um, available to everyone else too. It's easier if you're within that framework because you have that firepower behind you and you have maybe some legal protections, but just as workers, you know, I guess that's more in like the IWW solidarity unionism model, yeah. right? Where like, we don't like, we don't need, you know, stinking badges. Like we're a union because we say we're a union. We're going to take control of things in our own way. Like you see this in, um, I'm trying to think, I think, I, what's it called? Diversity Threads. There's a, there's a thrift shop in, I think, Richmond, Virginia, where workers just, uh, like they weren't being treated properly. I think it was like a, like a queer community space that wasn't living up to its values due to actions by management. And so they just put a, a letter on the door and said, we're not coming to work until you fix this. Here are our clear demands. Here's what we need. Here you go. Figure it out. Like, I don't think they're in a formal union, but they're acting collectively. And that's something that is totally available to, to everyone as long as you're in a workplace. If you're an independent contractor like me and probably some of you, that sucks and it's harder. But you can always find your people and you can always there's always options right like you don't have to just join a union you don't have to be a teamster to get shit done yeah i think you know when you were saying that i was going through my past experiences at places like that i'm like yeah we we kind of did do some of that stuff to varying degrees of success 
Sometimes it works out well. Sometimes it doesn't work out so well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was definitely a while where we did that did definitely make some make some decent changes, kind of based on on that model. Yeah, it's kind of a shift in perception where like you were just doing this because this is because you're a worker and like we we need to do this. But if you just take a step back and think of it as like this is a labor action, we're a union of workers. Like even just that little shift where it's like it's you know it's always us against them, but. Look, it's us as a little as a group, as a collective against this manager, against this exploitative practice. I think that adds a little bit of power and a little bit of energy because you you realize, you know, I'm still I think maybe it makes you feel a little less alone. And also, yeah, like, yeah it, absolutely. And like, I, you know, concerted activity is a legally protective right, too. So like there are some bits and pieces of labor law that are useful in these situations, too. If you have a nerdy friend who would like to read about them for you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for us here at It Could Happen Here. Um, until next time, remember, uh, 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 fuck it, organize. And where can people find uh, Kim Kelly online if we want to mm-hmm. send angry tweets? Oh, well, just try me, buddy. Um, I'm yeah. at, Gr- at Grim Kim because my college radio DJ name will never die. And uh, you can, if you are thus inclined, you can pre-order my book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, on the internet. Hopefully not Amazon. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you do, like, thank you, but there's other places that are better. Do you, uh, do you want people to send you a bunch of random knives, Kim? Knives? I mean, I wouldn't. We've had a lot of luck with that in the past. I like knives. I like skincare. I like mm-hmm. loose leaf tea. I contain multitudes, really. Send Kim a loose leaf tea skincare knife. One of those, <laughs> one of those exfoliating knives with a with a tea infuser in the in the hilt. Wow, Somebody that make sounds that. Great. Somebody that make sounds that like, product. That sounds like the next behind the bastards merch. Yeah, the tea yeah. knife. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll put that out after we get finished. We're we've got a very exciting Black Friday product this year, which is a uh, a, a male to male. Light socket adapter. Um, people say you shouldn't do it. They say it causes electrocution and fires and death. And I think those people are cucks. Um, buy our mail-to-mail adapter. Show the the woke establishment that you won't be you won't be chained. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were. You spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here. This is It Could Happen Here, the show about how things are falling apart and how maybe they could be made a bit better. Uh, right now, uh, today, we're doing an episode that is uh, based on a, uh, I don't know, essay Garrison wrote and I edited uh, that we think you'll find interesting. So here it goes. Green capitalism promises to deliver us all the same luxuries and commodities that we enjoy today, but without doing net harm to the biosphere. It's the message liberal elites try to hold on when they make their case for being better stewards of the environment than Republicans. This is not untrue, but it's also not true enough to stop your house from flooding or your town from being incinerated in a hellstorm. When it comes to the methods green capitalism posits by which we might reverse course without changing the direction of the ship, one term you'll hear often is energy efficiency. I want to read a statement I found on WhiteHouse.gov, a fact sheet on the new U.S. government commitment to reduce carbon emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030. I should note that's 50 percent of the 2005 levels, which were like 15 percent higher, something like that. Anyway, here's the quote. The United States can create good-paying jobs and cut emissions and energy costs for families by supporting efficiency upgrades and electrification in buildings through support for job-creating retrofit programs and sustainable affordable housing, wider use of heat pumps and induction stoves, adoption of modern energy codes for new buildings. The United States will also invest in new technologies to reduce emissions associated with construction, including for high-performance electrified buildings. 
Now, energy efficiency is in fact a fine goal, and trying to reduce emissions is broadly good. But the sad and kind of weird fact is that increasing efficiency can sometimes mean increasing pollution through what's known as the efficiency paradox, which is, of course, the title of the episode, because what you want, you want us to think of a second title, of a separate title from that? Come on. So first off, uh, what does energy efficiency mean? In general terms, energy efficiency refers to the amount of output that can be produced with a given input of energy, output being stuff that energy is used to do, like light your house or wash your clothing or power your wall-mounted 20-volt vibrator that requires as much electricity as an arc welder in order to use. Energy savings are the reduction of energy use without the loss of output produced. Improved energy efficiency is expected to bring a number of benefits. First of all, reducing energy usage should result in lower energy bills. Ideally, reduced energy demand also means that energy imports can be decreased. The International Energy Agency has estimated that strict efficiency policies could allow the world to achieve more than 40% of the greenhouse gas emissions cuts needed to reach its climate goals, even without new technology. So there is considerable wiggle room within the existing structures of global society to reduce emissions a lot without fancy space technology. But despite substantial energy efficiency gains in the past few decades and decreases in output from places like the United States, we as a species are using more energy than we have pretty much forever, and emissions wildly surpass our or the Earth's ability to handle them. Quoting from the Global Carbon Project, quote, Global energy growth is outpacing decarbonization. Despite positive progress in 20 countries whose economies have grown over the last decade and their emissions have declined, growth in energy use from fossil fuel sources is still outpacing the rise of low-carbon sources and activities. A robust global economy, insufficient emission reductions in developed countries, and a need for increased energy use in developing countries, where per capita emissions remain far below those of wealthier nations, will continue to put upward pressure on CO2 emissions. They use the term developing um, and developed. We don't prefer those. But obviously, population growth contributes to all that, the, the growth and the use of energy and the emissions of carbon. Um, you know, more people, more cars on the road, whatever. But it's not really the primary factor that's adding on to the increase in energy use for the human race. We'll talk about that later, though. For now, it's important to note that the full potential energy savings, like in these kind of hypotheticals about how much could be saved by improving efficiency, are usually estimated by assuming that demand for energy services will remain unchanged after energy efficiency gains. So when they say that we can get 40% of the greenhouse emissions gases, uh, gas reductions we need by increasing efficiency, they're doing that assuming that nothing will change about our overall energy use when we make things more efficient. But Time and time again, we see that once products are made more energy efficient, people often end up consuming, producing, or even using more of the thing, which makes the potential savings less meaningful in a net result. Doesn't mean that it's not a net good, but it's not as much as is often calculated in these climate proposals. You can see this demonstrated on the job if you're in, say, food services. Uh, if you happen to figure out how to do a task faster, your boss probably isn't going to let you use that extra time to just chill out and do stuff on your phone. Um, what is the phrase? If you can lean, you can clean. Um, so if you do something faster, now you're just expected to do it faster all the time and output more total work for your boss. This is the paradox of efficiency, and it applies to energy as well on a societal level. Increased energy efficiency is a double-edged sword, having the potential to help cut emissions by a significant factor, um, and having the potential to increase our total energy use, depending on what is made more efficient and how people react to it. 
the idea that energy efficiency improvements can actually lead to more overall energy use goes all the way back to the start of the Industrial Revolution. In 1865, economist William Stanley Jevons published a book called The Coal Question, in which he argued that innovation and efficiency, particularly in the case of the coal-powered steam engine, would actually increase the overall consumption of coal, rather than reducing it as it had been intended to do. His prediction that efficiency improvements on steam engines would lead to massive economic expansion, accelerating coal consumption, was very much correct. This idea, then, dubbed the Jeevens Paradox, is still very much worth considering when we discuss efficiency gains and policies that are meant to reduce energy consumption and thereby fight climate change. In modern terms, we describe the process by which potential energy savings can be cut by greater use of the energy-efficient product as the rebound effect. There are two different kinds of rebound effects observed, the most obvious of which is dubbed the direct rebound effect. Direct rebounds are observed when improvements in energy efficiency for a particular energy service reduces the effective price of that service and thus provides incentives to increase its demand. This leads to the overall increased efficiency not equaling to a reduction in energy use, as good as you might think. Direct rebounds are observed when improvements in energy efficiency for a particular energy service reduces the effective price of that enough that it provides incentives to increase its demand. You may upgrade to a more energy-efficient appliance, but because of the lower energy costs, you'll use the appliance more often and thus use more total energy. Or in some cases, energy efficiency gains are cut by the fact that more efficient products allow people to use more of that product. For example, someone may get a more efficient fridge that's also much larger, and so even though it cools more efficiently, it's also consuming overall more energy. Transportation has a lot of direct rebounds. Despite massive fuel efficiency gains in recent years, transportation is still responsible for 23% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Transportation's contribution to global warming is quickly increasing, with travel producing greater and greater percentages of the planet's carbon footprint. Private automobile tailpipes will drive this phenomenon for the foreseeable future, as the number of active vehicles on the road is projected to grow from 700 million in the year 2000 to 2 billion by 2040. So even though cars are a lot more efficient, vastly more cars are being used. And of course, that's not entirely, it, it doesn't mean that like more efficient cars cause people to buy more cars, but it does make it more affordable for more people to own cars and to drive them further, which drives up, you know, fuel use and drives up emissions and you see how the whole problem works. Uh, and it's not just cars. When planes became more fuel efficient, ticket prices decreased and more people started to travel by plane. As cost per mile dropped, more miles were flown. The fact that airplanes got more fuel efficient didn't reduce general pollution by the air travel industry. Quite to the contrary, in fact, the decreased emissions led to an increase in air travel, which shot a hell of a lot more poison out into the sky and also gave us eat, pray, love. So the other kinds of rebounds are indirect rebound effects. This refers to when energy efficiency leads to monetary savings for a producer or consumer, who then can spend those extra savings on other carbon-emitting goods and services that otherwise they couldn't afford. For example, you buy a more fuel-efficient car, you save money on fuel, and you end up with extra funds in your bank account that you can use on a vacation, and maybe you take a flight on that vacation. So in the end, you emit more CO2, despite the fact that you're emitting less CO2 through your car. You've got 500 bucks extra in the bank, and you fly to Mexico on it, right? That's an indirect rebound rebound effect. 
So even if a product is replaced by a more efficient one with similar specs, lower energy bills can mean that more consumers will have more money to spend on goods and services. This is generally seen as desirable from a social and economic standpoint, and probably from an individual standpoint, having more money is always useful. Um, but it involves additional energy consumption. It means that you're consuming more, you're emitting more, um, and so the savings and whatnot haven't actually led to a savings in terms of, you know, from an environmental perspective. An analysis of EU data shows that out of 29 EU countries, 11 experienced rebound effects of over 50%, which means more than half of the gains uh, in energy efficiency were consumed by increases in uh, energy use. Six of those countries, including Denmark and Finland, reached over 100% rebound effects. This is called a backfire, and it means that in those six countries, extra energy spending overtook all of the efficiency gains achieved. Air conditioning and heating are large contributors to both direct and indirect rebounds. A rebound effect as large as 60% has been shown in increased improvements in efficiency in the residential heating sector, which is something that the White House specifically crowed about in their paper. In China, long-term rebound effects ranging from 46% to 56% for residential electricity consumption in Beijing have been estimated. All of this data casts doubt on the wisdom of relying on energy efficiency policies to reduce energy demand. I'm going to quote here from a report by the Copenhagen School of Energy Infrastructure. In recent decades, large increases in demand for energy services have globally driven energy consumption. As a counterbalance, energy efficiency has become a key energy policy mechanism to tackle higher energy consumption and emissions, and countries and regions have adopted different targets and policies to achieve energy and environmental objectives. The main goals of these policies are to minimize the dependence on fossil fuels and mitigate local air pollution and GHG emissions. This has been particularly relevant for the energy-intensive sectors, the development and deployment of more efficient technologies technologies are, along with more technology management, the main channel to achieve these environmental and energy objectives. However, energy efficiency improvements can lead to changes in the demand for energy services, changes that offset some of the expected energy savings. Consequently, forecasts of energy consumption reductions may be overstated. As evidenced by the empirical literature, rebound effects can be a non-negligible issue. Therefore, ignoring them can imply an overestimation of the benefits coming from energy efficiency improvements. This can in turn lead to decisions such as the overallocation of public funds to ineffective environmental and energy policies. Policymakers need to take rebound effects into account for air quality, energy security, and climate change policy reasons. A rebound effect different from zero implies that the expected proportional reductions in emissions from fuel efficiency improvements might not be achieved. Therefore, the policy goals to reach specific levels of emissions through fuel efficiency enhancements may need to be adjusted accordingly. Now again, we have nothing against the idea of making more efficient devices. The point is that energy efficiency can't be pursued in a vacuum. It has to coincide with changes to a less extractive, cancerous mindset regarding the Earth's resources and carrying capacity. Just telling someone, you can drive more for less money now, or you can afford to keep your TV on all the time, doesn't really help anything. My fear is that governments and corporations, the neoliberal leviathan as we've come to call it on this show, will focus almost overwhelmingly on energy efficiency to maintain economic growth and obscure the overall lack of action on stopping carbon emissions. Think Joe Biden doing donuts in an electric Jeep. 
Through such a lens as the Biden administration, energy efficiency as a foil to climate change is a charade, being used to keep relentless economic growth viewed as a net good. It plays into the myth that we'll be able to mitigate, adapt, and survive the effects of climate change with little to no change to our current lifestyles. What we need to do is decouple human well-being from energy consumption, and consumption in general, to effectively combat climate change. This needs to happen at such a scale that advocating for individual changes in lifestyle will never be enough. But that is still a significant part of the puzzle. The trick comes in getting people to accept the fact that their life will need to change, without then telling them, and buying this product instead of that product is how you do it. That said, populations of people can and do change their behaviors in pretty profound ways. In 1950, abortion was not at all an issue for the religious right. Resistance to abortion might make some Protestants distrust you, because that was seen as a Catholic concern. Now abortion is the defining political issue of the ascendant right. Their promise to destroy it is the rock upon which their titanic power is based. In a less calamitous sense, since 2007, we've gone from a time in which smartphones were expensive trash for rich people to buy to today, when they're expensive trash that every human being who can afford to has to carry at all times because they're so utterly integrated to our daily life. So yes, people can change. A bigger challenge, though, will be to change the mindset of industry, which is not entirely or even often driven by consumer demand. As we've seen with the release of papers proving Chevron and other oil and gas companies knew about and deliberately hid research on climate change for decades, big capital will put its thumb on the scale every step of the way. In other words, if you come at the behemoth that is the integrated industrial economy, you'd best come correct. How do we do that? Well, if anybody really knew, they would have, you know, done it by now. The human infrastructure of extractive capitalism is deep and vast and tightly woven into the structure of every government with any real power. So, with the full understanding and admission that we aren't claiming to have solutions to that problem, let's talk about something that will at least be part of any real solution to the problem. Degrowth. This is a term we'll explain in more detail later, but we mean it simply as a holistic approach to encouraging reduction in energy consumption and global environmental justice. A paper on the Jeevan's paradox and the link between innovation, efficiency, and sustainability for the frontiers in energy research concluded, quote, The Jeevan's paradox entails that sustainability problems cannot be solved by technological innovations alone. They must be solved through institutional and behavioral changes. While there are still differences of opinion about the scale of rebound effects and ongoing arguments about the macro and micro and longer and shorter term consequences of efficiency, our interest in this topic today is driven by the goal of improving how we use energy rather than totally overhauling or abandoning efficiency. One example would be the current fight in Europe over smartphone chargers. Most of the rest of the smartphone industry worldwide has jumped onto USB-C as the right kind of port for charging, etc. with your device. Before this point, those of you who have been using smartphones for a decade or more remember, there were tons of different chargers, and thus a ton of different waste. Every phone had to come with a new charger, a lot of them wound up in the trash. That has been reduced by everyone jumping onto USB-C. But Apple continues to use their own special charger, and now the EU is promising to make a law to mandate USB-C for charging new phones in an attempt to reduce waste. This isn't, again, a bad thing, but if someone's really concerned with waste among the smartphone industry, planned obsolescence is the thing to go after. Now, 
Targeting planned obsolescence, stopping it, includes a number of things. And for one thing, you have to fight for the right to repair devices, which is something that a number of corporations, not just in the smartphone industry, have lobbied to, in some cases, make illegal. More than that, it's stopping somehow these companies from making the conscious decision to brick old technology to increase profits. And that aspect of it is the bigger enemy than even the right to repair. As electronic devices become common in more sectors of daily life via the Internet of Things, the overall share of global energy use that goes to making new versions of old products that could still be working but are designed to break is is really quite depressing. For one example of how large it must be, I haven't found any solid information on the total size of, of this industry, things that you have to repeatedly rebuy because they're meant to break. But the mobile phone industry in 2019 alone was 4.6% of global GDP. So that's close to 5% of global GDP just from making phones that are designed to break so you have to buy a new phone. This is an example of an area in which people's perspectives have to be changed. And I I think actually that digital fatigue, the fact that we're all so fucking exhausted with these devices these days, may provide somewhat of an inroad for convincing people that they need to buy new gadgets less often. But because these gadgets are so crucial to daily life, the industry actually also has to be forced to change. And again, right repair is one part of this, but that doesn't stop Apple from just deciding to throttle their old devices whenever they need to add a new layer to the money pile. Our overall point with all this is that solutions to climate change have to be cultural and not just based in some version of, we'll invent a better version and that will solve the problem. Hybrid gas-burning cars and standardized charging cords are nibbling around the edges of the problem. Relying on technological advances pacifies us in the present, and it reinforces the need for certain types of human material codependence, and that kind of codependence leads to increased dependency and more extraction. By no means am I trying to say that innovation is bad. I love gadgets as much as the next person. Innovation also has the capacity to heavily decrease resource extraction. It just has to be tailored with something more than just, we'll make this device more efficient so we can use it more or sell more of them. The capitalist mode of mass resource extraction and grind for efficiency are intertwined. And if we are to limit the most catastrophic effects of climate change, we as a culture need to rethink how we view efficiency and energy use. For the past few hundred years, economic growth has been the road that has led to our current ecological dilemma. The fantasy of switching over to nuclear and renewable energy with a perfectly efficient electric grid to just sidestep climate collapse is, it's a fantasy. We missed our chance to do that. Even if we stop all carbon emissions right now, all of them, the carbon already in the atmosphere would push us past 2 degrees Celsius of warming in about 50 years. So what, besides carbon capture, can we do about this? We as in both you, the regular listener, and the ghouls with power and real influence. Well, the 2018 International Panel on Climate Change Special Report indicated that, in the absence of speculative negative emissions technologies, the only feasible way to remain within safe carbon budgets was for high-income nations to actively slow down the pace of material production and consumption. Degrowth is the planned reduction of energy use, corporate profits, overproduction, and excess consumption designed to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a way that reduces inequality while focusing on human and ecological well-being. This isn't just some sort of utopian Marxist thinking, and in fact, a lot of Marxists have critiques of degrowth. And degrowth could be applied to a number of different economic and governmental systems. There are even some weirdo capitalist advocates of degrowth. 
Discussion about solving climate change can get into uncomfortable eugenics territory if you aren't careful. So I should emphasize here that degrowth is primarily about already wealthy countries limiting their economic growth. When aggregated in terms of income, the richest half of the world, high and upper middle income countries, emit 86% of global CO2 emissions. The bottom half, lower and middle income countries, emit only 14%. With very few exceptions, the richer the nation is, the more it emits. It's all part of the resource extraction infinite growth lie we tell ourselves to keep going. Wealth is so much more of a factor in emissions than population. North America is home to only 5% of the world population, but emits nearly 18% of CO2. Asia is home to 60% of the world's population, but emits just 49% of CO2. Africa has 16% of the population, but emits just 4% of its CO2. This is reflected in per capita emissions. The average North American emits 17 times more than the average African. This inequality in global emissions lies at the heart of why international agreement on climate change has and continues to be so contentious. The richest countries in the world are home to half the world population and emit 86% of CO2. We want global incomes and living standards, especially for those of the poorest half of the world, to rise. The only way to do that while limiting climate change is to shrink the emissions of high-income countries. Even several billion additional people in low-income nations would leave global emissions almost unchanged. Three or four billion poor individuals would only account for a few percent of global CO2. At the other end of the distribution, however, adding only one billion high-income individuals to the wealthiest parts of the world would increase global emissions by almost a third. A programmer in the United States has a higher CO2 footprint than 50 farmers in Uganda. A decent chunk of this is just due to meat consumption. Meat consumption per capita in the richest 15 countries is 750% higher than in the poorest 24 countries. Lowering the population of, say, Uruguay won't do much for emissions. This is not the case when you talk about wealthy nations. In fact, if you live in, say, the United States, possibly the biggest thing you as an individual could do to reduce emissions is to have fewer or no children. It's estimated that dedicated recycling curbs about 0.3 metric tons of CO2 emissions per year, while having one fewer child is equivalent to preventing over 58 tons of CO2 emissions a year. Better sex ed and free access to contraceptives could also go a shockingly long way to curbing individual emission in wealthy countries. These numbers are averaged across a whole nation, and just like the case in less wealthy countries, the impact on emissions by having one fewer kid will be far lesser if you're middle class or poor than it would be if you're upper middle class or rich. But of course, none of that is going to be enough if industrial production keeps chugging along. And advising people not to have children, one of the singular driving motivations for human beings across history, isn't exactly a vote-getter of a proposition. Degrowth is critical, but the question of how to get there is thorny as hell. There are few easy answers. Abolishing planned obsolescence could be pretty easily pitched to the average person. Cutting down on the number of people who have to commute could have a significant impact on toxic car culture. And again, you can sell that to people. The obvious solutions are good places to start, but they should be seen as opening incisions, meant to clear the way to make deeper, more expansive cuts, and eventually hew away at the cancer we've planted in the heart of our civilization. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? 
What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it's could ha- it's happened could hear Robert Evans, the podcast that is now begun. Um, this is a show about how things are falling apart and occasionally how to how to maybe deal with that. Maybe try to steer things in a better direction. We talk about a bunch of stuff today. We're going to be talking about more supply line um um stuff. And and in order to kind of introduce this episode, uh, we wanted to bring in Alexis, who posted a a thread on Twitter. Um, about some of their experiences in the industry in which they work that that we all found very interesting. And so we just wanted to bring Alexis on and uh, and and first off, have you kind of go over what what you went over in that thread and then um, kind of z- zero in and talk about that. So Alexis, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm gonna let you take it from here and then we'll we'll drill in once you once you get through your your piece. 
All right, so I'm just going to go ahead and read the thread that I posted, and then, yeah, we'll go from there. Uh, so, labor shortage discourse time. I work for a food manufacturing company, specifically bottling and canning various beverages, and we are desperately understaffed. The wages are competitive, but they can't keep anyone on after they hire them. Why? Because we're short on people. As soon as someone is trained, they start throwing massive amounts of mandatory overtime on them to try and cover the missing pieces while they look for more people to hire in. Folks get burned out and quit. And this is where my hate of just-in-time manufacturing comes in. Now, obviously, in food manufacturing, you can't just stock a warehouse with stuff and let it sit for a year. But you can keep a couple of weeks worth stock rotating at all times if you devote the warehouse space, employees, etc. to doing so. This would give you some flex time to train your new people without having to run everyone into the dirt. So even with a place that is offering decent money and benefits, because this is a union shop, we can't keep people because we're making a conscious decision to only ever have one to two days of stock on hand to increase profits. Meanwhile, thanks to lean manufacturing, we don't keep a ton of spare parts for our equipment on hand. Thanks to the supply chain disruption, we've got packaging equipment that's been waiting on replacement parts for six months, which further fucks our productivity due to downtime which makes the company schedule even more overtime to try and make up for the lost cases from equipment downtime, which burns out more employees, which puts us in an even deeper labor hole. I've been warning about just-in-time being a time bomb in the making for over a decade now. When it works perfectly, you're fine. A single interruption causes cascade effects, and since everyone has been doing the just-in-time thing, there's zero slack anywhere in the system. Grocery stores don't have any extra soda in the back. They get behind. Demand builds up. Distribution doesn't have any pallets in the warehouse. Ha, what warehouse? So they can't answer the surge in demand from grocery stores. Manufacturing doesn't have spare parts for aging equipment, so we can't boost production. Spare parts makers don't have stock buildup, so on and on it goes. The actual proximate cause of this is deregulation of capitalism that has incentivized quarterly profits and made long-term thinking anathema to CEOs. But sure, conservatives, blame California for not letting old trucks offload at the ports. That's it. And that's that's the essence of my thread. I then plug my podcast at the end. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I wanted to I'm curious as to kind of like. uh, To what it, like, I'm trying to understand, like what the solution is, like we've talked a bit about, OK, just in time manufacturing is is problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, keeping more like on the shelves is going to allow you to avoid these crunches and is going to like make supply line issues like the ones we've been experiencing since the start of the covid pandemic less severe and less common um but how do you actually how do you actually make that happen because I, I guess the traditional free market thing is that like well because this has been such a problem for companies um you know they'll naturally change the system in order to avoid this in the future i don't feel like that's likely to happen um no. and i i'm wondering like what do we uh what what what, what do you think is the the way forward here well, because some of the problem is, is right now, like mo most companies, you will pay taxes on stuff that you have stored in a warehouse, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so no company is going to voluntarily lower their profit margins if the other companies don't do it themselves as well. So really, there's going to have to be some sort of forcing of companies to uh, have that on hand. And I don't see just being able to write a law that says, oh, well, you're required to have this much backstock on hand as, as being a, a functional way to work. And really, as I'm sure, you know, Robert, I know you're well aware, the, the capitalism itself is kind of the problem. But as far as I, I guess a, a, a solution to this sort of thing, 
um, you would have to disincentivize the quarterly profits above all in order to force companies back into long-term thinking. Now, from a purely like mechanical standpoint, um, I guess if you if you did something to incentivize companies having backstock or flex stock on on hand, that might help. But um, I mean, I'm just I'm just a cog in the machine getting ground up. So as far as like big solutions, that's I mean, I've been looking at it ever since I worked in a freaking casket factory and we started doing just in time there and just. Every time that I've been in a place, a manufacturing place and seen it happen, I'm just like, oh, this is going to go wrong because you can't you can do just in time if all of your suppliers are local. But having it stretched across a global supply chain, it just it's inevitably going to collapse in on itself. I'm I'm sorry that I'm not more helpful. No, no. But I mean, this is this is like. The problem, because there's a lot of reasons why the supply chain is global. Some of them are like labor related reasons. Some of them are cost cutting. Some of them are just like pure pragmatism. Um, but it's trying to like I, I I don't I feel like it's it's one thing to say like well part of the problem is that like all of these different pieces come from different countries um, and there's a number of shady reasons for aspects of that. Um, but it makes for greater problems when there's a supply line shortage and then like okay well what are we what are we gonna are, are you suggesting that we make everything domestically? Because I, I don't feel like that's a realistic solution. I, um, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. And it like it's just it's I, I'm trying to get a handle on. There's a couple of angles on this. There's there's what we think is going to happen. Um, and then there's the question of like, is there a way that the system as it exists could make this whole thing less vulnerable? And in a lot of ways, that's going to be separate from the question of what would be better for everyone to happen? Because a lot of what would be better for everyone to happen is a wide, a significant chunk of these things that we have constantly stocked on the shelves are no longer parts of our life, right? Um, Right. There's a lot of things that are made that we do not need and that are, there's an environmental cost and a social cost and yada, yada, yada. Um, But I I, I guess first... I'm kind of curious to drilling in, like, how realistic do you think it is that the system as it exists is going to, like, mitigate this and come up with better ways to to do this that render us less vulnerable to these supply crunches? Like, is there I, I don't see a great financial incentive in it for them yet because um, they they don't seem to be hurting. Right. Like, well, that's that's the thing. Well, actually, and and again, please keep in mind, this is limited anecdotal evidence. Yeah. But- because it's going to be um, different. Like John Deere, I know, was making record profits before all the, this union stuff uh, happened. But like, that's not everyone. Right. Yeah. So, so again, I work for a soda manufacturer. So every time you're, in, you know, enjoying your your Schmepsi Schmola or your or your Schmego, whatever, yeah. uh, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to explain which company I work for because I don't want to get in trouble. Um and we're we're actually a captive bottler, which means yeah. that it's a separate company, but we work for the the big soda corporation. I think that in certain instances, those things will change because, for example, just last week, we had one of our four lines go down. So 25% of our production capacity went down because we had a motor burnout on the rollers that would move a full pallet out to be picked up by a forklift. Mm-hmm. And there was no replacement motor in stock. And so we had, I think, 48 hours of downtime on this. Now, all the way up at the top, the company executives, you know, we're one of 30 some plants. They don't care about why it was down, just that it was down. So in our position here, um, 
the people a little higher up the food chain than me are insisting like, hey, we've been after you guys for months that we need spares like this. And I think that as that sort of stuff happens, as it cuts into potential future profits, you know, it's not dropping their profits, but it's keeping them from being even higher. Maybe certain certain companies are going to be like, okay, maybe we do need a couple more spares on the shelves. As far as on the production side of it, I don't see that happening. I think we're still going to be shipping out pallets of, you know, pallets of corn syrup, infected uh, carbonated water as fast as we can make them. Uh, which you and you were talking about the environmental costs. Like you do not want to know how much water it takes to make a single liter of soda. You really don't. Yeah. Um, but on this, on the production, like input side, I think that companies are going to start stocking spare parts because it has been, and I still have friends who work for other companies that I used to work for. It has been all throughout the system. And I, I live in the Midwest every company is going through this where they're having huge amounts of downtime because they things as small as a gasket or an o-ring are not on the shelf and they're finally companies are finally going to listen to what their maintenance people have been screaming at them that we can't just stagger along and then oh well it's next day delivery yeah and then you freak out that this line was down for 24 hours now that it's not even next day delivery it's next week delivery i think that side of it they're going to probably try and fix but the other side shipping to the consumer, I yeah. really don't see that they're going to change that. Yeah, I mean, that makes that makes sense. And it, I, we are it, you are kind of led thinking about this inevitably to like two conclusions. One of them is that I have my I'm, I'm sure parts of this, the the system will adapt as it already has been, in fact, which is why, like, you haven't seen toilet paper run out as bad as it did at the start of the pandemic again. Right. There is a degree to which. The system is capable of adjustment, but kind of in a larger sense, um, uh, this is uh, number one. I, I'm kind of left with the feeling that because of the way the system was set up, the and the fact that it was disrupted so severely, it's kind of impossible to get a hundred percent back on track. Especially considering the disruptions are going to continue, not just waves of COVID, but you know, in natural disasters and whatnot, shortages of of things like uh, truck drivers. Like these different little hits are going to keep coming, and I I just don't know that we're ever going to like catch up everywhere enough that like shortages of some sort aren't an aspect of our lives kind of forever. And this is one of those things that if you've spent a lot of time outside of the United States, that's something a lot of people have been dealing with for years. It's just not something mm-hmm. Americans are used to dealing with. And I think I kind of feel like that's just where it is now. Like I don't feel like every aspect of our our production and consumption system is going to get back where to where it was February of 2020. I think maybe that's never happening again. No, absolutely. It will not ever happen again. <laughs> you were saying earlier that, you know, there's some practical reasons for the global supply chain. Like one of the things that we've had such hard time getting in is any of our concentrates that contain real vanilla. Obviously, right. we can't grow vanilla in the United States. Yeah, that's the thing you have to. I mean, there, that's part of why colonialism exists, right? Is mm-hmm. you need to go get vanilla. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, there are certain things that are going to be stay yeah. have to stay global if we're going to continue to make the things that we make. Mm-hmm. And just from my side of it, being able to see oh, well, why can't we get this concentrate in? Oh, because it has vanilla as an ingredient and there's been a bunch of droughts and shit. And so vanilla is in a crunch, you know, that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. So I just, um, you're right in that, yeah, we're going to have shortages. There's, it's, 
you know, and it's not just the mechanical side on ours. It's like, we can't get cans in, we can't get concentrate in, we can't, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is that we can't get in is going to slow us down and demand will build up. I did have somebody in that thread respond and say, I don't see how demand for soda will build up. And I'm like, now I have a friend who's like a diet Dr. Pepper fiend. And as soon as diet Dr. Pepper shows up now, she buys like eight 24 packs. Demand mm-hmm. will absolutely build up for stuff. When people feel like they're being deprived of something, yep. they, when it becomes available, they're going to hoard it as best they can. Yeah. And that's, again, with soda, just kind of an annoyance, although that can, because individual people can react in extreme ways, can uh, snowball. I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to be surprised if one of these days we have somebody shoot up a fucking grocery store because they're whatever was out. Um, but... That's also not a necessity. And I, I think that like the the concern is that especially when you, you, you look at stuff like, you know, there's a couple of states that had like their wheat harvest and corn harvest that were like half or less than half of normal in big chunks of Iraq. It was like down by, I think, like 70 or 80 percent, um, like these massive sh- shortages of, of growing basic foodstuffs. Um, and that's all that's all tied into this. Like it's not the same business that you're on, but it's all tied into aspects of this. And it's all tied into like a lot of our ability to get that food out of the field is reliant upon different kinds of mechanical harvesting equipment. The materials to which to like fix and replace it are often like caught up in this whole just in time problem because they don't make enough of them. And sometimes they don't have them in stores. And then there's like a strike at John Deere. And so more aren't getting made. And so there's not what you need to repair the equipment in time to get stuff out of the field everywhere. And in a year when you already have a reduction of harvests, like that cuts down on it further. Um, like I, I think – I don't know. It, it's it's this – there's always a couple of things to look at, which is like number one, as we've talked about, like how is the system uh, going to try to handle this? What ways are they going to be successful? What ways are they going to fail? What things are you going to have to endure? And what things – I think what I want to talk about next is like what things do we need to change uh, <laughs> in order to like – as communities be more resilient to this stuff, which, you know, has less to do with soda, which again is not a necessity, but more to do with figuring out how to anticipate and endure supply line disruptions. Right. Absolutely. And, and while I'm currently in soda, I have been in everything from automotive to, I think, yeah. as I mentioned before, casket manufacturer. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, but when I is... can go through a casket a week, you know, <laughs> Especially when you're driving your uh, your well, yeah, when I'm drunk driving in a oh boy, right, right through a trailer park. I mean, your your I mean, your casket order's got to be through the roof. Uh, It is it is a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I I I do actually wonder how (laughs) fuck. Um, I mean, like I I do actually wonder how much like the casket industry and stuff like that has been affected by the by like by the pandemic with the Mm -hmm. you know an influx of dead people. And how that's how how that's affected things. That's something I've been wondering about, but I've not actually spent time well, looking into. I can't speak to the pandemic specifically. I quit. I quit the casket industry in two thousand and eight. But I do recall my boss, uh, the owner at the time, being very very upset that Hurricane Katrina had a lower death toll than he anticipated because oh, he that's over, really yeah. That's he had over ordered the sheet metal to make the caskets, and uh-huh. he was very pissed off about having all that extra stock because they were that's trying incredible. to transfer to, to just <laughs> in time. Society, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's good to hear. Yeah, great. Yeah, he he was in a bad mood for like a month after Katrina because <laughs> oh, God, uh, it hadn't reached his expectations. Well, sure, that's a real problem for for him. absolutely. <laughs> no, that, he's got that's all the sympathy, critical support. I mean, to the ghoul. <laughs> That, that, was, that job was grim. I'm just going to say that. Uh, that yeah. It sounds like it. 
I I have a through a through a, a loved one a connection to somebody who is like works for a company that makes body bags and 2020 was amazing for them. They did incredible in 2020. Um I didn't yeah. hear any ghoulish stories. It's just like, yeah, of course you guys made a bunch no, yeah, of extra money. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like that was great for you. <laughs> put, put, putting in putting in a mental note to uh Go through a bunch of the campaign contributions of people who make body bags and check if they're supporting anti-mask yes. candidates. Yeah, see if Big Corpse got into this at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, the thing to the thing to do is, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of the stock market in general. But next time, the, next time there's a pandemic, find out which companies make body bags on the stock market and invest in those as soon as as soon as the pandemic starts. I mean, I can tell you what I'm I'm putting money into Big Corpse as soon as uh as soon as the next pandemic hits. That's absolutely going to happen. <laughs> Oh boy! Uh, All right, yeah, that's grim. Yeah, I think it's it, fine. Uh, th- there's a reason why after after I started working there, I immediately uh, told my husband, "Hey, uh, make sure if I die before you, I'm cremated." So yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> I or, don't want to give these monsters any of my money. What I, what I'm looking into is just full full body stuffing that people can pose me around. But that's a separate topic. <laughs> yeah, you talk about that a lot, Garrison. What I did want to mention is like actually um, when you were talking about how they hire in a lot of employees and they make them work horrible hours and then they, you know, they quit. This is kind of a constant kind of process. And like this isn't exclusive to that industry at all. One of the worst offenders of this is actually the Postal Service. Um, I think the the Postal Service has like the lowest employee satisfaction out of any shipping company. Um, And like my, my, my father worked for the Postal Service for a bit. And when you first join up. You join as like a you you join as a on like a non career employee path, and then you can get promoted to a career employee path after a few years. But the turnaround for the non career employee paths is massive. Like local branches can say up to like ninety percent of people who start working at the postal service will end up quitting within the year. Now that number can be different based on like nationally and based on like you know based on what state you're in. But but across the board, it, it's always around at least fifty percent for um, employee turnaround for people who join up the postal service on these um like city carrier assistant positions. That's um, fascinating. Yeah, because because when you when you're a non-career employee path, you have to work 7 days a week and you can be called into work basically any time, usually working around 10 to 12 hour days. All of the career employees, so all of like wow, the right, that sounds like what all, I put you the, guys through. Eh. <laughs> but like all of all all of like all of like the regular carriers get to work like their specific route and that's it mm. that's their whole day for yeah. the for the people who are new to the job they're forced to work tons of routes um fill in whenever someone else can't and uh we constantly be doing overtime um and working like basically non-stop non-stop with only like two like only two holidays off a year or something it's it's pretty intense um which is why you know when the postal service comes have problems and because and, and because there's so few, there's generally not tons of employees i mean like there is lots like comparatively like like the like the postal service is one of the bigger employers in in, in the whole country but the, for people when 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 employees drop off filling those positions can be really hard in times of like crisis so like you know last year when there was all those problems with the postal service all of these kind of issues around the supply chain and around how people treat their workers, all of them like com- like you know compound to create one like much bigger problem, which we saw last year with the postal service and like late in like the late summer. Um, so I just find it interesting how it's like you know these same issues around like how we treat workers is adding on to this problem of like supply chains and getting stuff delivered and all this kind of stuff. And so what what I find interesting there is so you're you know we're talking about the the 
uh, employee issue. And yeah, it churn. So I've been uh, the plant I was working in, which is 20 minutes from my house, closed down. And now I'm working uh, 90 miles away, literally an hour and 45 Jesus minutes. Jesus Christ. Jesus yeah. H. Um, Christ. I am I am working four twelves a week and I'm crashing at my parents' house, which they live about 60 miles away. So it's a little bit better. Um, but also that my parents still are, sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And my parents are hard right evangelicals who do not agree with uh, you know, Oof. this. So <laughs> that's fun. But um the plant that I was in was a non-union plant, and the one I'm in now is a union plant. And one of the things that I've noticed that's actually kind of different is for once in the non-union plant, things were actually better because what we could do, what, what, what could be done is, all right, we're all working seven days a week. We have enough staffing that if nobody calls in, we have one spare person who normally goes around and gives breaks and stuff like that. Well, we could, you know, basically all take turns taking a day off during that seven day week. At the union plant that I'm at now, though, it's all seniority based. So any time that they force overtime, they go from the, the bottom of the seniority list on up. Yeah. So oh, yeah. The people, the people who are being forced into those, which I described in the thread, I think uh, it was, it was split off in the thread, but uh, the, the, the people who were being forced to stay over four hours and then yeah. come in four hours early where you, Oh, you were working six to two. Now you're working, you know, six to six. And then you're coming in at, two in the morning instead of six in the morning the next day are always the people who are the lowest on the seniority list, which is same why... Thing with, same, th same thing with the Postal Service, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's exactly. not... It, it, there's a number of different... I mean, I've heard that complaint from a couple of different union gigs. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a problem, yeah. And it's... That's why we get these new people, and they get trained up, and now they're trained, and, and they're signed off, and then they immediately go from... Because when you're training, you're not you can't train on overtime or whatever, yeah. but yeah. now it's, Oh, okay. Well now you're working every weekend. You're being forced over. You're being forced in early, just nonstop. And so, yeah, they get trained for a month. And then a month after that, they quit because they went from working a relatively a sane yeah. amount yeah. to <laughs> an absurd amount. Eight yeah. Hours a week. We went 58 days at one point without a day off. Yeah, like oh my, God. My, yeah. My, my dad went like almost, I think, like 300 days without with, without a day off when he started the Postal Service. A kind of funny thing is like when you hear the Postal Service talk about this like from the, in their own reports and on their own website, what they find a problem with is not, not the turnaround in and of itself, but how they're basically wasting money on trainings for, for people that don't mm -hmm. end up working. So like that is their main concern is that they're spending all this money on like training for people that don't stick around often. Um, and I'm like, yeah, well, I, maybe you should address why they don't stick around often. That's, that seems to be kind of the actual issue here. Yeah. And, and what I've been pushing for, and I know this is more on the labor side than on the, on the supply chain side that we were focusing on. I've been pushing for, instead of three shifts where we keep just getting just hammered with this stuff, I want us to do four shifts, 12-hour days, and do like a two-on, two-off, three-on, three-off type swing shift where you have like one shift that works, you know, you work three days, one week, four days, the next week, and you work 12 hour days, but really you wind up getting a bunch of days off, you know, like that's, if you're going to work seven days a week, that's the best way to do it. In my opinion. Yeah. But I mean, like, you know, it's, there's a lot of resistance to, well, what a, well, then we have to hire these extra people. Well, yeah. you're hiring those people anyway. And then they're quitting. I mean, like <laughs> you're it, it, not it, even getting your value out of them. Slave drivers. <laughs> 
I mean, like you said, this is more this is more on the labor side than the supply chain side. But honestly, these are these are like the same side, right? Because yeah. if you don't have employee, like this is you know this is a fundamental you know thing in like how capitalism works, right? You need to have you know workers to make there have be any value at all, right? So if there's if there isn't any people to working, then there is no supply chain. It's gone because we need people to do it, both on like the production side and both in like the transportation side. That's like, you know, UPS, USPS, you know, FedEx, you know, so like the mail carriers and stuff is very important to all of this because you you, you need, in order for, for there to be a supply chain, there needs to be the, the, the chain part, right, where you carry it from one place to to another. So it's, bo- it's both on the production side and on like the transportation side for and- how all of these problems, you know, yeah, and one and one of the things that I in the replies to my thread, which I got into, was that um, part of the the only slack in just in time uh, manufacturing is the employees. They've pulled all of the slack out of the system on the mechanical side and on the production side of it, on all the physical side. The only slack left is people, and they have stretched us all to the absolute breaking point. Now I'm lucky relatively speaking in that I'm salary. So like I'm more on the inventory side of things. So I'm not doing the hourly production seven day a week thing. Like I said, I work four twelves, um, but I can still, you know, and that that's this job, every other previous job, not the same thing, but I can still see where they've taken out. Like, once again, we used to have spares on the shelf so that when something broke down, we could fix the machine and keep running. Now, instead of the spare, the spare is people working weekends. That's the spare part. And that now. makes total sense, right? You're you're the capitalist. A better a spare that is an, a part on the shelf costs you money in terms of like you need to have that space. That's extra rent you're paying. You need to have bought that part. Having your people just kill themselves is much cheaper you can sort of misuse a Marx here, right? Where like one of Marx's things is like, okay, well, you know, you, you have, you have this increased machinery, you have this increased machinery, but that means you're producing less value because, you know, you've, you've put more people out of work. Well, it's like, okay, well, what if, what if we just, we re-extend the workday again and sort of, you know, re- reverse all of the gains that have been happening. Well, okay. I say have been happening. Reverse all the gains that happened between about 1930 and like 1970 and just, oh, well, what if we just make everyone work 12 hour days again? And that that was you know one of the, that was the thing that I that would struck me both listening to this and reading the thread was that it's it's not even just wages it's just it's 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 a it's just the fundamental power imbalance, and then it's a fundamental power imbalance that's gotten so bad that even like you know the 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 the, the like sometimes the remains of the union system it's like it's not even you know like the, the unions like in in this particular case like this is they're not even it's not even really helping it's just creating like a, you have a small labor aristocracy and you have everyone else getting just like ground down in this case and, it's that we've got a we've got a small core of people who've been there 20 or 30 years yeah and and whereas before maybe even 10 years ago they might have viewed the union as a vehicle to help everybody things have gotten so bad that now it's just okay i'm going to use this system as much as i can to cover my own ass because things have gotten so damn bad. And obviously, you know, Reagan destroying the unions and stuff like yeah. that helped with that. But yeah, it's the I and I feel like the union in, in my job could be very helpful. Yeah. Um, but yep. it would require certain people in it to instead of looking out for just their own interest, because hey, I've been here 25 years, so I'm in the clear, <laughs> like actually go, okay. 
maybe I should, you know, sacrifice a little bit of, of that power or that privilege to help the people who are just hiring in so that we can keep them so that that this doesn't have to keep happening. Yeah. But, and it's you know, this is one of the things that has made the John Deere strike uh, that made it so powerful was these those older workers who I mean, they, they had a tiered system, right? So you had workers hired, I think, before like 97 got a full pension and then like after 97 was like a third of that and then workers hired in the last couple of years weren't getting any pension at all and a big part of the strike is like all of the workers saying that's not acceptable um including the ones who had a full pension who had some of a pension like saying that like the fact that the newer people are getting screwed over isn't acceptable and i've heard different reasons for why that happened because this is this tactic what you're talking about and kind of like what happened at john deere it was a common tactic you know it's the thing we talk about in colonialism all the time you want to divide the population against you know each each other one way or the other give them like make make them feel as if their interests are not necessarily aligned you know so the people who um and there's reasons i've heard different reasons for why john deere was different including the idea that like a lot of these are family jobs so it was not people it was people being like, well, my kid's not going to get a pension and that's bullshit. Um, anyway, yeah, I just it's 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 important to talk about like that as a problem and also to highlight different strikes where that seems to have been overcome by the workers. Like this fact that they were attempted to be played against each other didn't really work out. And where in my case, it very much is like uh, yeah. another another example being. So we'll have people who are are lower on the seniority list. And like, let's say, for example, one weekend we're running lines three and five and not the other two. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the newer people might only know stuff on line four. But if the new people don't get scheduled to do something, even if they're just being forced in to sweep the floor, the people who have the higher seniority will throw a fit saying, well, they're lower seniority. Why aren't they in here? As opposed mm-hmm. to, well, because they can't run that machine. And then they don't want to train them to run that machine. It's it's very, they've managed to succeed where the John Deere capitalists might have failed in making this all about like, all right, working. Con- and, and I don't blame the people who have the higher seniority on this because if my, you know, if, if your working conditions are hell yeah. and you have the option of, okay, well, on a short term scale, I can screw over this other person and actually see my family once in a while. Most people are going to do it. And yep. especially if that person is somebody who just hired in that you don't know, well, screw that guy. And that's where, once again, if unions were stronger, if they, it was more than what is it right now, like two, three percent of jobs are a union job. But unions have been so like just weakened that this sort of situation is allowed to happen, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that comes back to this, like the, the, the salute, the solution to the supply chain problem isn't really a, like it's, it, it's, it's not, it's not a logistical solution. It's not even really like a capital gain solution, or like a tax solution. The solution is that, you know, you, you have to fundamentally change the balance of power between capital and labor. And, you know, I mean, that and that that can be like, you know, think things will get better if it's if it's more unions. But like things are going to continue to suck until like the capitalists cease to exist as a class. Yeah. And I think that's like, yeah, yeah, that's always the and it's one of those like we get we get critiqued on the Internet sometimes because I think people will, will say like, well, 
you know, is your only solution to this. You keep talking about like mutual aid and, and anarchism and like, I just don't feel like that's a, a big scale solution. It's like, yeah, but the current system isn't going to work very well on a big scale. Part of what we're always talking about is like how to how to get your how to get yourself and your people through the situation, because that's also oh, yeah. important. And it's the same thing with like a union, right? Unionizing you and your fellow laborers in your factory or or making your union more effective and more able to like advocate for everyone. That's not going to fix the bigger problem. That's not going to deal with the the issues that like that's not going to stop climate change. That's not going to stop supply line crunches in a grand scale. It's not going to stop creeping authoritarianism, but it can make life more bearable for you and the people around you. And that's that's also part of like getting by in a crumbling world. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yep, it's it, it requires a bit of uh, more foresight, which I think was one of the other purposes behind mm-hmm. working us as many hours as they do is mm-hmm. when you're so fucking tired all yeah. the time from working what you're working you don't have time to stop and think about the larger implications of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And that's part of what they're going for. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyone else got anything? Well, I guess just the clear solution to this is that I need to just stock up on bang, right? I just need to buy yeah, all that well, I can because like, I, 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 I love bang. I, I can't stop <laughs> drinking bang. I, <laughs> I will say, I, are, are I you scared of how uh, much you love bang? I'm, I'm scared of how much bang I drink. I, I will Garrison say one of, is, one of the okay. uh, wonderful mutual aid solutions is if you're very, very nice to the syrup mixing people, they will be kind to you if you are, are working a double and they will give you a shot of the energy drink syrup before it's been mixed. Oh my god. Oh, oh wow. God. Oh boy. It's you should five You should not have shot. told Garrison that. <laughs> I'm going to develop gonna, a problem. <laughs> Garrison's going to quit his job podcasting just to be able to get <laughs> I am shots of just energy gonna drink. Just shooting up energy drink here on out. That's all I'm doing with my time. I'm signing my, uh, I'm leaving leaving the call right now finding the nearest factory and I hope you're happy. Se- my second day on the on the job in the soda manufacturing thing, I had a 24 pack of energy drink uh, explode all over me. Oh. I didn't have a change of clothes. And oh, that's man. when I learned that caffeine and taurine can soak through your skin. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. No, I mean, basically I was seeing sound. OK, so I I've just been looking up inflatable hot tubs and I feel like if I could order enough pure energy drink syrup in an inflatable hot tub, I could build basically the equivalent of Baron Harkonnen's rejuvenation bath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but with like but pure with bang syrup. Yeah, yeah, that is that is that is my plan. Just I mean, B12 caffeine it's, and taurine. It's just going to be, we're all going to quit our jobs. We're just going to have the same amount of money. They get slower over time uh, because we're, again, spending it all on bang syrup. Well, obviously, yeah. you need you need the inside person to supply you with the syrup. So we'll just have sort of an Ocean's Eleven situation yeah. where you guys pull up to the loading dock and with a tanker, and I'm just hooking the truck up, you mm-hmm. know? It's going to be like Scarface, but we're selling pure syrup, and then Garrison loses his mind uh, yeah. <laughs> and winds up in a machine gun fight in a mansion. Instead, I, of, um, instead of burying yeah. his face into a mountain of cocaine, he's instead got just a large just pirate bowl full yeah. of syrup. Yeah. Yes. He's just sticking his hand into a bowl of syrup to absorb the 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 caffeinated nutrients. When I pee, it's, when I pee it's just going to be straight syrup now. That is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, that's the episode. <laughs> <laughs> where, uh, where can they, if people want to find you online where can they find you so i host uh, along with my husband and our friend justin we host a uh, trans 
comedy and pop culture podcast where we also interview interesting people. Um, it's called The Violet Wanderers. So you can find us on Twitter at Violet Wanderers or TheVioletWanderers.com or email TheVioletWanderers at gmail.com. And that's uh, basically that's my Twitter handle. And I just slowly got sucked into the Twitter hellscape where I yeah, that happens. originally went on just like, oh, I'm going to just promote my show. And then I started responding to people. And before you know it, I'm writing 20 tweet rants about just in time on my stupid gay podcast account. I got into Twitter to converse with a Young Justice podcast. And that's why I created my Twitter account. <laughs> and here I am now. So because hey, I, I was trying to get a Planetside 2 beta key and I, I got it. but. The consequences were uh, I am now here. Yeah, uh, see, Twitter, see, Twitter, see. Twitter, and its consequences have been a disaster for us. You're, you're this. You're such a child. I remember the first Planet Side Beta. Oh Back no. in the day, Chris, <laughs> it was an age undreamed of. Oh, Chris, and uh, you all are welcome to come on the show anytime. I will, I will bother you to come on my show sometime. And Excellent. Yeah, about, give, uh, give it give, plugs, <laughs> plugs probably. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I said, Dad. Uh, the Violet Wanderers, we're on mm-hmm. Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Podcast Addict, whatever, you know, like all your major podcast platforms. Uh, the tagline of the show is uh, made for no one. So um, expect a lot of queer humor, a lot of me uh, calling my husband a slut and us talking about video games, comic books, movies, and then occasionally just randomly interviewing really interesting people who I harass into coming on the show. Uh, like which Robert, I know uh, you know Daniel Harper from I Don't Speak German. I sure do. He's been yeah. on a few times. Um, we've had him on and and had some fun talking about Nazis, which yeah seems kind of you know counterintuitive, but uh, there's a lot of humor that can be found in Nazis if you know the right places to look. And, oh, and yeah, I you know what I just watched a German language movie about Hitler that was made in 2007 by a Jewish German comedian that includes, I've watched a lot of Hitler movies, you know, periodically I just get on Netflix and Hulu type in Hitler, just kind of watch whatever's there. This is the first time I have seen Hitler fucking in a movie. I've never (laughs) seen anybody who had the courage to do that. And he is just, yeah, he's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Is one ball just swinging in the wind. It is, it is an uncomfortable scene, but not the most uncomfortable scene in that particular movie. Um, it's quite it. a film. That's I was gonna say that's pretty amazing. But yeah, come yeah. on some come on sometime. Uh we'll play yeah. a round of Incel Mageddon, which is a game that I've created. And uh, you know, All if right. you guys don't want to kill yourselves afterwards, then hey, you survived the game. As long as I can get some syrup out of the deal, that's that's all I want. Just... I will I will I will smuggle you some syrup out and mail it to you. Okay. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Right. Well, that's that's gonna do it for all of us here today. And it could happen here. Um until next time, I don't know. Go go read go read the the dawn of everything it's good it's worth reading check it out hey we'll be back monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe it could happen here is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.